Welcome to School of Everything Else. Spider-Man. With us is Jesse Ferguson of Recorded Tomorrow. Hello, Jesse. Hello. Uh, by the way, one or two major character developments happen in the final few missions of this game that those who haven't played it really won't want to hear about. So we will respectfully hold them back for the tail end of the show and give you a full spoiler warning and some music and you can take your leave at that point. Go away, play the whole thing and then come back and listen to the tail end some several weeks from now. Uh, yeah, and, you don't want this to be spoiled. Yeah. And this game could really have done with a subtitle. For Googling purposes, Spider-Man PS4 will do. And I get that Insomniac were trying to deliver the definitive Spider-Man experience in a sexy new shell. But as the years tick on and the immediate project and product fall out of the direct conversation and get sequels and other adaptations, it becomes increasingly apparent that Prince of Persia, the game released in 2008, the one with Elika that everyone has forgotten, needed a subtitle. <laughs> and Star Trek 2009 should have been subtitled New Horizons. Ooh. There's a reason Marvel didn't call Spider-Man Homecoming simply Spider-Man. Qualifying the original console release code is neither encompassing of the overall story of what happens to Peter and his allies and antagonists in this game, nor is it exciting to say out loud. In fact, it's a wee bit territorial, though it does make people who own only PCs or Microsoft Xboxes or Nintendo Switches or Atari Jaguars wish that they had invested in a PS4. Or it makes them double down and get critical when they don't need to. Yeah, that's what defensive yeah. and territorial does sometimes. Mm-hmm. People have batted around the idea that this might eventually come out on Xbox, which would require some serious generosity on Sony's part. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, under those circumstances, going to need a subtitle. Generosity and Sony, not words that customers <laughs> put together, really. Okay, so for the purposes of this analysis, rather than calling it The Spider-Man, I'm calling this game The Big Apple, for reasons I'll explain in a bit. I wasn't going to do a show on The Big Apple, I was just going to enjoy it to its fullest, but Chris Finnick expressed lament that to commission me to play through would cost more than most people can afford, considering the dozens of hours involved. However, because I was already partway through and it was bringing me joy, I decided to do it at a low, low standard price of $150. I wouldn't have decided that before I began. It is an entirely different kettle of fish than having a 12-hour game I've never played proposed to me. Somebody's been asking if we'll do Sexy Brutal. For example, never played it. Um, 
In fact, I'm, 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 it, it is by all accounts a good, a good game, but it's, it represents a, a time sink. Uh, so, in fact, I'm going to have to state plainly moving forward that after this late 2018 window, Sharon and I won't be commissioning TV or games that we haven't already seen or played at least some of first and actually engaged with. So, for example, The Good Place, which we already love, is coming up, as is the last TV show that we've not seen before accepting the commission for the first season of The Expanse. Addendum. We started watching The Expanse. We couldn't stand it. We forced our way through the first two episodes out of ten, didn't know anyone's names, didn't care what was going on. Imagine feeling that when you got to the end of a two-hour movie, and being told that by the time you got to the end of the fourth sequel, it would be really good. We stopped watching The Expanse, and after discussing with the commissioner of that show, who was very gracious and understanding, we are now doing the 1999 Brendan Fraser film, The Mummy. Film is our medium and it works to a timescale and structure that we can quantify and work into this show. We've got we've got kind of a loose formula with what how we approach films. I mean we, we make them varied in, in, in you know depending on the different tones, but you have to vary them quite substantially if you change medium. A film we dislike with plenty in it to discuss in a ninety minute show will still make for great podcasting. See our episode on Swiss Army Man for that. If a game isn't grabbing us, then the prospect of gripping the joypad and slogging through many more hours of it to then have to speak about our experience is not something that anyone really wants. See our episode on Analogue Hate Story for that concept exemplified. And it should go without saying, no anime, but I've now been told on Twitter by someone I respect that I sound like a dismissive asshole for saying no anime. Seemingly throwing the entirety of Japan and its millennia of heritage and many, many, many otaku fans under the bus. This season, Sharon and I actually tried reviewing Mary and the Witch's Flower for a patron. We couldn't get more than 15 minutes out of it. And the conversation broke down for all the reasons that I've lamented in the past. So from now on, I'm just going to have to ignore any requests for anime. I can't say no anime anymore. I can't take the 40 minutes or so out of my day each time to again explain on Twitter my reasoning and have that lengthy and entirely inevitable exchange of why not, here's why, with yet another tenacious anime fan. I wish there was a non-rude way to convey this to every new person who isn't aware of my many long years of dabbling experience. And I was hoping no anime would become an amusing meme for the community, but it just, apparently, if it makes me look like a prick, then silence will have to suffice. And I'm going to start this show with a thing I wrote, which actually explains quite a lot about where I stand on video games. And then we can talk about the various points of Spider-Man, colon, The Big Apple. As we lead in, I want to focus on the music and why it fits so neatly with how we feel about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm going to play you three bits of music. This first one is from Thor The Dark World. This second one is from Iron Man 3. And 
this third one is Eight Years in the Making from the Spider-Man video game soundtrack by John Paisano, who has done a fantastic job capturing that flavour. Gaming as a medium has had a harder job getting my attention as I approach 40. I don't like excluding my wife and child and playing a video game while they sit unable to connect with me or having to amuse themselves in the same room or elsewhere in the house. This has been the case for many years. I think I lost the ability to get seriously involved with a game to the exclusion of all else when I went to college. There were too many people and responsibilities that I had to juggle and managing my sleep became more of a priority. When you're a teenager or single, you can play until 2am like I did this morning with Pokemon Let's Go in a rare instance of just getting hooked into gaming. I I just had to get Bulbasaur, Charmander and Squirtle and that meant catching 60 Pokemon and that's a quest that I can't sleep on. (laughs) (laughs) But when you have to be up early for work or you have to take your daughter to school or in my case to write or edit because the hours between 9am and 2pm are the most productive and creative when my mind is awake and on point and after 3pm I'm a zombie who can manage little more than simple edits at least up until about 8pm when I'm exhausted anyway so it's a different kind of exhaustion by that point it's kind of a I need to relax but I can't relax between 3 and 8 And when I have an evening with the woman I love intensely and we're working on movies for our movie podcast or just trying to relax together, shutting her out so that I can play Fallout the whole evening while she reads became something I found myself weighing up to find less and less rewarding. Movies are quantifiable in duration. If I put on Creed at 8pm, I know it will be over at 13 minutes past 10. If I put on Uncharted, I don't know where I'll be at 10.13. I could be in the middle of a lengthy multi-part mission. It might keep the momentum going until 12.45, and then I only have six hours of sleep. I'm working then at a recharge deficit You can do that once or twice and not suffer too much a couple of days in a row, but if it's every night, then the loss of those extra hours means your ability to think and cope when awake takes a permanent hit until you make yourself adjust your routine. And that's a situation which has become unsustainable. So surely the logical solution is be hard on yourself, stop playing at 10.13 no matter where you are. As a result of doing precisely that, I have left off more games than I can count in the middle of a firefight or a mission, killing the momentum. Resuming the game the next day could leave me swamped or spun around or unsure where I've been and most of all disengaged with what's happening. I'm goal-oriented. I like finishing things. And games are, by design, a string of goals. They're demanding by their very nature. They're not impassive like the process of watching a film. A game requires action and direct physical engagement to nudge forward, and I personally have too many mistresses to serve. Hence my sprawling collection of games that I've only partially played on Xbox One, left off because the momentum ebbed and never gone back to. And when I do, I'm disinterested and lost. Sandbox games in particular have the ability to leave me uncertain what to do next, and since the industry chases what's popular, sandbox is the way most adventure games are now. And even a lot of racing games. 
I love The Witcher 3, but I am tired of being too weak to fight the enemies in both the main and side missions. I skipped some side quests on the start-out section, and I wasn't allowed to go back, leaving me permanently handicapped and ice-skating uphill. And that was my second playthrough, because I'd logged 15 hours on the first PS4 version before I then sold my PS4, so I wasn't starting The Witcher 3 a third time, just to stay afloat. There's simply too many games vying for my attention in a world where games are just one of the things vying for my attention. And when it comes to analysis, consider this. Films take two hours. Games take 20 to 40. And that's 10 to 20 times the hours doing the same thing, which usually boils down to a few hours of plot and 17 to 37 of mechanics. So you had better like getting into shootouts because that's what will be filling up those hours. We're going to be talking about Spider-Man now, but the stuff we're going to talk about mostly is technically the things that happened the least in the game. The character moments, the plot developments, little individual one-off things. It's one of the reasons we haven't covered The Raid yet, the film, because that movie, much as I love it, is in majority the mechanics of tension and explosive martial arts. And there's not that much you can really say about that. It's hard to talk about anything online, especially in public forums, but gaming is an area where whatever you say, if it's based in strong feeling, is going to invite strong counterpoints, often from strangers who don't care one bit about the point you're making. They just want to ensure that whatever they perceive as being attacked gets defended, usually in an offensive manner. And conversely, if you're expressing joy, you'll get people desperate to express that they hate the thing you love. It's like that with film, but there's another reason I don't do video gaming videos on YouTube. So what I'm going to say is not meant to attack one of the most venerated and celebrated pieces of gaming history released in recent times, so much as to express how stark contrast with Spider-Man The Big Apple made a potentially engrossing experience in this other game repellent to me. Spider-Man is one of those few games that really grabbed me and held me for hours on end every evening for weeks, principally because nearly all the decisions made by Insomniac seem to be in the service of both fun and the most deceleration-free of experiences. (laughs) Deceleration, in this case, is simply put, slowing down. Spider-Man The Big Apple is designed to allow you to make decisions on how you play and adjust your style and setup in moments. Every movement deliberately flows from whatever you were doing to whatever you are now doing in less than a blink of an eye. In fact, if you blink, you'll miss the conjoining frames that flow from one action to the next. It wants to be one thing, and that is for you to feel like Peter Parker, the Spider-Man, in New York City. A being not so much in total control of his environment, but most definitely able to move around it with grace beyond that of a gymnast or acrobat or animal or an arachnid, allowing changes of direction and intent at a speed approaching thought. In other words, we make full use of our spider sense without even thinking about it consciously, which is just as it should be. Realism is almost always eschewed in favour of game momentum. If you fall from the top of Avengers Tower, you will, after a dizzying plunge, end up hopping lightly down to street level, rather than pancaking on the sidewalk. The dev team simply decided, no, Spider-Man can't get injured falling from a building. Similarly, Insomniac decided that when you press the attack button next to a civilian, Spidey won't punch them, dropping his role as protector and engaging in GTA-style punishment of the population. Instead, he greets them and they wave back. Ironically, these two decisions actually feel more realistic to the world that we are immersed in. He carries two dozen costumes in his back pocket, a dozen strange tools, and has a detailed map of Manhattan in his head. 
very few restrictions are foisted upon the player, especially by the end. And there are a few missions where if you don't react fast enough in a moving quick time event that you have to do it over again. But it is, on the whole, very forgiving as an experience. Things around you become chaotic, but you are always capable of reacting accordingly and intuitively. If you die, it's almost always your fault. I can't seem to really remember a time when I was like, that stupid game! Now, the game I moved on to immediately after finishing this one was Red Dead Redemption 2. And, and some of you may have done the same, considering the release dates, and will know what is coming. And I'll say, I've only played a few hours, and I can't comment on the whole experience, only that of the transition from the end of this adventure to the beginning of the other. <clears throat> I'd been moving towards the last mission of The Big Apple steadily over the week before Red Dead's release, and actually found the only parts of Spider-Man that annoyed me, the final few optional Sable bases, stretched the limits of how long I could happily fight mobs, and the slight uptick in intensity meant I died more, which meant I had to repeat more of them. I got very good at dispatching 82 out of 88 men and then screwing up when I didn't dodge sniped rockets in time and being forced to do it all over again with no markers, no kind of like, oh, well, let's start you again on wave three. It's like, no, do it all over again. But they were optional, so I left a few of them and they moved on to the actual final battle. The business of survival had become zen-like. In order to stay moving, I had to stop thinking and I had to react with instinct, constantly varying my responses to keep them distracted. Keeping mobile, zipping around the enclosed environments, covering enormous amounts of ground with dizzying speed. So imagine, if you will, finishing up, taking the additional emotional weight of that powerful ending to the Big Apple and moving on to Red Dead, a game that, rather unwisely in context of release, begins in a deserted settlement knee-deep in snow. I was flung into opposites land, where before I had moved like a hummingbird, reacting with wit and improvised elegance, now I waded slowly, grumbling through a thick white substance that was symbolic of stasis and arrested progress. Wise of the Tomb Raider and Skyrim had the same issue with me. When I get stuck in snow in a game, I instinctively go into hibernation mode. I want to retreat and sleep until spring. Alex the Bear. Yeah. Where before I had, in rare fashion for video games, preserved the lives of men I was fighting, never once killing anyone, even going so far as to net the unfortunate boobs I had uppercutted from roofs of skyscrapers and securing them safely to the sides of buildings. Now, I clumsily shot them dead in cover-based shootouts that have not changed over much since 2006's Gears of War 12 years ago, and not changed one iota since Red Dead Redemption 8 years ago or else struggled to shoot wolves from horseback in what felt like a tank section that moved too erratically to be exciting. Where before I had been in the shoes of Peter Parker, and not just that, a really good version of Peter Parker, rivaling mm -hmm. my personal favourites, Tom Holland of Homecoming and Josh Keaton of Spectacular. This is one of my favourite characters of all time, and the writers genuinely understand how to make him both compelling and authentic, delivering qualities that we've seen before with a new sense of established experience that we rarely get to see outside the comics. He may be imported from 50-plus years of other media, but that doesn't stop Parker being one of the best characters in video gaming history now. And I'm sure he's great, but I'm several hours into Red Dead Redemption 2 and I still don't remember my character's name. Nor could I tell you anything about him save for that he is gruff. Meeting John Marston in the first few minutes of gameplay, far from being delightful, served only to highlight the memories of how the original Red Dead Redemption established John's character, personality and goals carefully and compellingly within a short introductory period. 
where in Spidey I conversed with rich, personable versions of Mary Jane, Aunt May, Otto Octavius, Miles Morales, growing closer with each and hoping all the while that they would not come to harm. Once again, in Red Dead 2, I'm sure there are some fantastic characters later on, but I didn't meet any in the first section. Couldn't tell you a name or recall a single conversation, many of which were mumbled while on horseback in a way that made it hard to tell who was saying what. Where I experienced a sense of not only freedom but exhilaration from travel around Manhattan, eschewing the slovenly footpace and danger-fraught car theft of Grand Theft Auto games as I swung long and low, propelling myself down the avenues with joy that never seemed to dissipate. And again, that sense of authenticity to character. And that hurtle from the heights where the screen starts to shake and you feel the momentum and air pressure as you plunge downwards your heart leaping up into your throat until at the last second you fling out a tumbling web line and pendulum back up this game really does move like we always imagined and caught glimpses of in the movies and animated shows and a few other games then I stumbled around the landscape of Red Dead on a slow, awkward horse whose most memorable action was to stop to take a shit with his horse balls frozen. <laughs> Adhering to Rockstar's endless fascination with their own detail. I won't go into that too much. Jim Sterling did a really great video on exactly that. And in fact, Dan Floyd of New Frame Plus did two fantastic videos on Red Dead and Spider-Man in short order. The luxurious overabundance of movement that far from drawing you in makes you wait and struggle to get done what you're aiming for. Again, everything in Spider-Man seemed geared towards fun and engagement. Movies don't all have to be fun, but they do have to be engaging, and that is a quality I'm finding less and less in video games as I get older, for the reasons I've mentioned above and more. The market currently stays locked in the direction of massive sandbox worlds, vast open spaces dotted with busy work markers with microtransaction-filled marketplaces constantly dogging you to spend Mickey Mouse money brought with real currency to improve your game, often by removing deliberate roadblocks installed by the developers. We've made the day-to-day -day business of playing more of a grind, but if you pay us, you can skip that. <clears throat> the MMORPG Gold Rush of the mid-2000s, which, by the way, resulted in no MMO as popular as Warcraft and a lot of companies <laughs> losing a lot of money and wasting a lot of time, has mutated into this pursuit of a mishmash of Assassin's Creed and Far Cry and Call of Duty and Destiny and Battlefield and Halo and Gears of War. This homogenization of styles and tones... And with the advent of slapping a battle royale mode into everything, whether it works or not, Fortnite. <laughs> the Big Apple is an open world sandbox, to be sure. But until I pulled out to the title screen about halfway through, because it was just like stop, start, stop, start, because of the whole sleep function of the PS4, I wasn't even aware that there was purchasable DLC. The traversal was so smooth and uninterrupted, the vast, constantly unlocking array of nerdily specific costumes so very free of, <laughs> of real-world surcharge. And the side missions varied enough to maintain a consistent momentum without feeling like I was being fed busy work. Much like the new God of War, this exports out of video gaming's past the now rare concept of an adventure that you begin, persist at, and then close out many hours later without once having to consult your bank details or compete with others. But while that recalled experience remains deeply gratifying, the execution is thoroughly next level, asking itself at all times, 
what is the quickest, smoothest, most fun way of the player executing this movement? Once again, I'll invoke Red Dead 2 and its confused attitude to realism for contrast. And bear in mind, Red Dead Redemption 1 is one of my abiding favorite games. So I really do anticipate that when I start playing for real and progressing through the story, I'm going to start to really engage and fall in love with the world of Red Dead 2. But... When my gruff bearded dude gets into a firefight, he immediately and without fail gets his hat shot off. If, during the chaos, I lose track of it, I'm then left running around hatless, wondering whether I've stepped into a version of Ubisoft's The Division, because without that Stetson, I'm just some dude with a gun. I lose the Western connection. I can't pick up any of the hats of the countless fallen enemies because somehow it's not realistic that he would wear someone else's hat, even though he'll steal their chewing tobacco out of their fucking dead mouth. Taking several luxurious seconds to go through the looting movements, I might add. To remedy my naked head, I have to retrieve my hat from the saddlebags of my horse, Dobbin, though it's not clear how the hat teleported to the horse. I can change my wardrobe while sat in the saddle because that's somehow realistic, though Dobbin can't be walking too fast because that's unrealistic. As Spidey, I'm swinging through the streets, I can change into my punk gear and then to something else within seconds at the flick of four buttons, and that stands the whole way through the game. Why? Because it's more fun that way and there's a bare minimum of deceleration. Would making Spidey have to go and hide down an alley to change really have made it a better game? You could argue that Red Dead as a simulation must perform the service of adhering to realistic movement. Your character is regular man, not a superhero, so he must bear these restrictions. Yet, gruff man can absorb fallen bullets themselves chambered inside fallen guns through his feet as he walks over them. But that makes the action more fluid, so we let that one pass, because it was during an action sequence, and we wouldn't want anything standing in the way of the action. Why is it then that every time I skin an animal, I am treated to a nauseating display of separating flesh from bone? Can he not simply walk over the carcass of a deer and obtain its skin that way? Or just a button press would have done as well. Could they just have given us one or two gory and detailed sequences early on and then kind of just switched it to Red Dead 1's off-camera swift carvery? Like, do you remember it? It was like it would sort of cut like down below and he began, and you get like a blood spatter, but you wouldn't be forced to watch it and it would be quick. The problem here is that I have a vast checklist of things that I'd like to do quickly and discreetly and Rockstar have an equally large checklist of things that they insist we do slowly and in insipid detail every single time like it's Skyward Sword there's no option to override their creative decisions and that's fine it's their game and they can make all the creative decisions they like but I'm not obligated to enjoy being forced through those 10,000 little gateways purely out of respect for their diligence Would the film Heat have been better had Michael Mann chosen to show each character having breakfast every morning because it's more realistic that way? Otherwise, how do we know they're having breakfast? And this is a movie with some of the most authentic gunfire exchanges in cinema. Self-editing when constructing simulation is a matter of not only putting the player in the boots of your grizzled gunslinger, but putting yourself as the developer into the Nikes of your player. Do they want to have to fiddle around readjusting the position of their on-screen avatar, overcompensating for the inertia of movement so that he can pick up something painfully close to being within reach? Or do they want to just grab that thing and decide quickly whether to inspect it or move on? 
I found in games over a long, long time that adhering to an industry standard for guiding a player through smoothly whilst incorporating three or four distinct and engrossing nods to realism has made for some of the best and most memorable experiences for me when it comes to realism being used well in a game. Far Cry 2 was far from being wholly realistic. Fire had to be managed because at one point somebody with a Molotov cocktail managed to burn down Africa. Ubisoft's savannah had to be stripped of lions because they kept eating all the herbivores. <laughs> but the rusted weapons, while they didn't ever affect the enemies who used them, left the player in a desperate situation. If they ran out of ammo in a firefight, they could jam or even explode. And while some people hated that, the fact that you could buy decent weapons that wouldn't expire put this degrading system way above, say, Breath of the Wild for me. <laughs> The fact that you could succumb to malaria at any inopportune moment and had to keep medication stocked up made things even more edge of your seat. Like you could be swimming across a river trying to escape from people shooting at you from the bank and then suddenly your screen goes yelling like, oh God, not now! But th those like left you, the fact that it could strike at any time made you always just a little bit tense. Like you were never, ever able to fully relax in that game. If your car was shot up and destroyed out in the bush and you couldn't repair it, you might find yourself with a long trek through hostile territory searching for a house that you could make safe. These limitations disappeared with Far Cry 3, which replaced the respawning checkpoints with those that you could clear forever and make the whole island a safe zone. The result being that you ended up feeling more empowered and less under fire, able to move anywhere with fast travel and 100% reliable weapons. Super detailed simulations like Red Dead 2 layer on the restrictions in service of immersion in a harsh but rich world. And that it has succeeded in this achievement for many, many people is without argument from me. It might, in fact, be that I spend so much of my time in the alternate 1880s of New Century with relative control of a what to focus on that makes this time travel to the frontier feel like a chain of rigmarole. <laughs> in other words, another storyteller's telling it and I get all shirty. Because <laughs> I wouldn't write about a horse shitting. <clears throat> and his balls. <laughs> Conversely, I also... <laughs> I'm just imagining one of your new century characters talking about the horse's balls. That does work. I was going to say what they would be much more likely to say is that, well, actually, any horses that people are riding are way more likely to be mares or geldings anyway, because they're a lot easier to manage. Mm. So most of them wouldn't have balls. Right. Mm. Are all the horses male? I don't know. Never, I, I never checked. Because well, I'm not fixated on equestrian testiculars. <laughs> Can somebody get me a pair of roomy mittens, please? Nothing itchy. My balls appear to have frozen. Conversely, I also don't tend to enjoy power fantasies that continuously layer on abilities until I am the god of a gaming world, meeting out death and destruction with decreasing effort. Spider-Man The Big Apple is a power fantasy, but it weaves into the narrative a distinct and memorable responsibility fantasy to counterbalance that. And it's one of my favourite games of all time.
so the first question I'm going to put out to, to both of you is how did they manage to make the island of Manhattan a character in this game? And just on a side note, Sharon didn't play it, but she watched me play hours and hours and hours of it. And so I true. did jump in for some of the puzzle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you helped me on some of those gosh darn puzzles, I which did. I haven't made a bullet point, but if you want to talk about them, you can. Yes, because the look of a circuit board makes your eyes cross and you go... Ah! <laughs> Luckily, my wife and daughter love puzzles, so... Uh... <laughs> Okay, uh, so how did they make the island of Manhattan a character in this game, Jesse and uh, Sharon? I, I think with this, this is where that attention to detail really comes into play. One of the things mm. that I noticed when people started sharing screenshots was you'd get somebody would put a little picture on Twitter of Spider Man sitting on a balcony of a, an apartment building mm -hmm. looking out over the streets, and they'd say, This is the view out of my apartment. This is what New hmm. York looks like from where I'm standing. Hmm. This is incredible. Mm -hmm. And I really, really liked that. I thought that was a really nice touch. It, it's Spider-Man has always been a New York hero, and he's, he's one of the things that's made Marvel stories feel very close to home. And given the almost people of New York, kind of an ownership of them. And I think this is an extension of that. I do also like the, the in terms of the city being a character, you can tell like each individual district has a different feel. Like, you know, the buildings aren't quite as tall in Harlem as they are in, you know, in Midtown. And, you know, there's things are a little bit grimier in certain areas. I always have to worry about when I'm zipping through Central Park, like, OK, this is going to be a little bit more tough because we don't have buildings. I just have to go through the trees. And would it be faster to cut, or, you know, to go around or to cut all the way through? It's you're constantly thinking about you're always thinking about the city itself as you're going through the day to day process, like going from checkpoint to checkpoint. And also, it's not just um, let's do a, a New York-style city. They've gone out of their way to make it as accurate as they possibly can. There's a couple of there's a couple of details which are actually almost charming in their inaccuracy. <laughs> they did what, one area is in development. I can't recall the actual place of it because when they were making the game, that area was in development in New York. It's now been finished and fixed, but it's still in <laughs> development in the game. So it's oddly it. accurate to a few years ago. So it's like a snapshot. Yeah. They added, mm -hmm. say, the Sanctum Sanctorum for Doctor Strange. But again, this is sure. this is Marvel's uh, uh, New York City. So it's... Uh, right. It, it, uh, the, there was one point when I was like, hang on, I recognize this bridge. And I kind of slowly <laughs> spun the camera around. And I realized that the other at the other end was Grand Central Station, where Will Smith got caught in I Am Legend. Uh, and, <laughs> but also, very specifically, I was standing on the exact spot where Captain America said to uh, Bruce Banner, this might be about the right time to start your party trick, Doctor banner <laughs> might be a good time to, get, time to get, angry. get angry yeah and and then it was like oh shit i'm in the That's another thing about the 
what's the word, the pervasiveness of New York through media, through film, even if we don't know New York inside out and backwards, even if we don't live there and we're not familiar with it, we have seen it in a hundred films. We've seen it Mm -hmm. in a thousand comics. We've seen those frames. We've seen those shots. Spidey's one of the reasons I love New York Mm. and it sort of worked, came full circle for this. Yeah, be a good idea to take Lyra. We went back in uh, 2003. It was a ridiculous, like, we, could just, we can't really afford to go, but if we only go for a few <laughs> days, we can just about afford it. Yep. Right, right. And, and we were just ridiculously tired. We had a stop-off in Pittsburgh for hours. We ended up getting there on, like, at 2 in the morning. Yeah, and then we had to leave, was... the, like, the, the day after tomorrow at, at, like, 2 in the afternoon. Yeah, it was supposed to be a long weekend. We were supposed to be there for three and a half days, but the mm-hmm. flight out, we ran into storms and had to stop and couldn't get into new york for like 10 hours yeah. oh wow but it wasn't my first time in new york uh it was it was sharon's only time but uh, plus everything it was 2003 and war with iraq had literally yeah. just started everything was on orange alert and everything was closed we weren't allowed to go up the empire state building no uh, couldn't go out to uh, ellis island yeah Anyway, so it's 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 one of the most wonderful places in the world for me, at least. It's one of the most meaningful, and being able to, I felt protective of it almost immediately. I was like, <laughs> right now, this is my city, um, mm. and uh, it is my duty to 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 serve it. Not 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 you know, I own this place, but like uh, like a knight, I am serving this place. It helps that the you know, to your point about the feel of the of movement and you know how well everything just just how great traversal in the game is that you get a feel for the city because you won't hesitate to just swing from the south end all the way up to the north end. Like, I honestly, sometimes I wondered why Insomniac even bothered implementing a fast travel system because traversal was so great. I'm glad they did because there were times when I was like, well, I just need to get these um, <laughs> side missions done in short order. Mm-hmm. So, But I, I tended to not use fast travel for when it was just moving around the place. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the fact that you could – you weren't obligated to fix – crimes in progress and you could just move past and and, and uh, also allowed you to if you wanted to role play the whole spider-man can't just leave a, a crime which gave you yeah. the choice gave you the sense of responsibility somebody pointed out on twitter that being late to visit with aunt may because you had to bust up a burglary was so quintessentially peter parker mm. true um, the the fact that they changed the times of day and, and sort of like rather than it being a constant cycle like uh, say the original GTA three uh, and just you know it becoming nighttime within twelve minutes and then going cycling back to uh, to daytime again they they give you distinct time periods to get stuff done between missions so right. it, and and the city's character kind of changed with each one like you know during the bit, bit middle of the day it was bustling at night time it was a little bit more uh shadowy and and um, like more things could happen unnoticed and um at sunset it felt like something was always about to happen having you able to interact with people as well one of the things I've always felt about the Grand Theft Auto games is that they feel a little bit empty, no matter how many people are around you. Mm. They only do very set things, and they're there for you to beat up if you want to or ignore if you don't want to. They don't really feel like they bring the 
the city to life. Well, effectively in GTA, you're wandering around like an apex predator. You're a psychopath. You could kill any of them. You've got a back pocket full of machine guns. Mm. And... Yeah, it is a game infamous for you know being on the news of look you can punch a hooker to death and steal the money back from her you just took from getting a hand Jay. There's a seediness no matter how you behave in GTA games, whereas with this it 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 always felt like you know you're a personality in this city and and far from just being a stuffy cop who's just got to do the right thing, you're you know a person who's known and someone who the city is you know by and large proud of. Uh, even though you know some people that were uh, are a little more hostile, the uh, like you're not surrounded by people desperate to talk to you. You're not there. There aren't paparazzi who are like we've got to talk to Spider Man. People are almost used to Spider Man being there. He's such a significant part of New York as well. I think that the the personification of Manhattan is partly tied up with the personification of Peter of Spider Man. Mm. That that feeling of this city has a reputation in some areas of the world of of being terrible, at least historically, Mm -hmm. that there are parts that you shouldn't go to and there there are parts where they have really high crime rates. But there's a a goodness about it, nevertheless, a desire to want to be better. Aspiration. Peter layers on himself as well. And then in the uh, the third act of the uh, game, this isn't much of a spoiler, but things go to shit, and the city becomes a very unfriendly and difficult place to to navigate. And it felt like that was wrong, and you needed to write that. And so, again, that sense of serving this place came back to me sharply. This has seriously raised the bar for me on hand-to-hand combat in other action games. Why might that be? Well, it goes back to, I think, your your point about how everything is so responsive. It's almost, you know, it's it's almost intuitive. Like, I almost felt like you don't even have to hit the button sometimes. It's just, like, as soon as you think about what you want to do, he's already doing it. It's, you know, so fast, so snappy, so immediate and and weighty and yet it doesn't reward button mashing at all much like the uh, the arkham games that kind of um initialized this whole someone's about to attack you in this way you've got to press this button to respond those mm-hmm. are effectively quick time events but they're woven seamlessly into combat and it, arkham did it fantastically it's because of the mobility of, of Spider-Man right. and his uh, the fact that he can change position and respond in so many different ways. It kind of puts Batman to shame. <laughs> I'm lacking for words to just describe how um, you know how good it feels to basically do anything in this game to to fight to swing around. Uh, just the the effort and the attention to detail that they put into the animation and the you know. Tying the different animations together, like you can, you can literally transition from doing anything into doing anything else. Like you can be in the middle of an uppercut and then zip across the way mm. to somewhere else and start kicking and jump up and swing back, and it's all feels so fluid and so effortless and so 
perfect. When uh, the beginning parts of the game, when people start throwing grenades at you and you're engaged in beating someone up, your natural instinct is, well, I don't have time to get that grenade. It's right on my feet. But after a few, um, you know, say another hour of playing, you're like, actually, hang on, punch, 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 snap, and then you can swing it around. And they they extend the fuse of that grenade for that crucial couple of mm-hmm. seconds, which means to, to a way that means it will automatically never harm you, but will always blast whoever you throw it at. Uh, afterwards the being able to snare things with your web line and you know eventually being able to snare people and toss them about <laughs> it reminded me most of all of i know everyone loves the spider-man 2 game but uh, i wasn't <laughs> it just i just wasn't that into the i think at the time i was playing a lot of xbox so i just right the game this reminds me most is that at least the feeling that i got when i played the original activision spider-man on the playstation 1 which yeah. was based on the Tony Hawk engine. They had taken a skateboarding game and gone, well, mm-hmm. how do we apply that to Spider-Man? And it's very crude by today's standards, but you can see the, the germ of the, the prototype of this in there. Welcome, true believers and newcomers alike. Spider-Man co-creator Stan Lee here. Once again, we find our hero Peter Parker, better known around the world as the amazing Spider-Man in a heap of trouble. But this is just the beginning, Spidey fans. So get ready for a true superhero action thriller, packed to the brim with thrills and chills, twists and turns, more supervillains than you can shake a web at, and of course, non-stop web-slinging, wall-crawling action. There's also an element of how... Being able to do that and everything being so natural and and that flow being continuous and uninterrupted is contrasted with the story elements and the character elements that go with Peter and specifically him having a life and a, a, a personal situation that involves struggle and anxiety and having to make decisions about things where... There is no right choice. The We were looking at the opening animations and the, the introduction to the, the game today. Mm-hmm. And there's a point where he has the police scanner on his phone is telling him that there's a, an incident that he feels he needs to go and get involved with. And there is a final demand letter on his doormat for his rent. And he needs to deal with that as well. And there's this brief moment where he's looking from one to the other. And ultimately, he has to choose which one he wants to deal with right now. And one of them, he can open the letter, but there is fuck all he can do about it. Or he can jump out of that window and he can whiz through the city and he can grab some bad guys. And ultimately, both of those choices are really important. And they both have significance for him personally. And there isn't really a right answer to which of those situations he needs to deal with. But one of them will make him feel like he can do something and he can cope. And the other one will make him feel like he can't. Peter's always been better at being Spider-Man than he has been at being Peter Parker. Mm. Mm. Okay, just as an experiment, I'm going to talk you through everything we can see with visual storytelling, this wordless intro. So we begin with a hanging spider and the blurry New York City in the background. Then we see photographs slowly coming into light, clearly Aunt May, Uncle Ben, Peter, MJ, Harry, the Brooklyn Bridge, a police scanner, 
Peter with Aunt May at the Foundation of Feast. A pot plant that appears to be dying because he's not watering it, showing that Peter isn't maintaining certain aspects of his life. Stacks of comic books including Amazing Fantasy, Science Apparatus, a crossword puzzle half filled in, doodles of web shooters, small home hand tools, updated web shooters, the box from an eaten Chinese takeaway meal, circuit boards, a magazine with Norman Osborne on the front with green Nerf darts next to it, two empty jars, vacation dollars, and new laptop, an energy bar wrapper, Peter's mask under a magnifier, a laptop running data, Daily Bugle front pages on Fisk and the Scorpion, and the Rhino, and the Vulture. Post-it note reminders from Peter, find out Yuri's birthday, call TS back regarding job offer. Who's TS? Rent past due again, Peter. Pick up Aunt May 10pm feast. Need catchphrase, it's webbing time? The suit stinks laundry, Peter. Mail JJJ, a dozen roses from secret admirer. Rent, rent, rent! Call ESU re-loan extension, and then in brackets, again. Another picture of Benjamin Parker just to remind us why he started this. And his phone. As Spidey gets up to answer the call and pulls on his costume, we see a poster of Crusher Hogan versus the Spider in the background. And then, the urgent final notice past you, Bill, comes under his door. And he looks from the alert phone to the Bill and jumps out the window. Following Spider-Man Homecoming, I've seen people, specifically on YouTube, lamenting Spider-Man becoming a mini Iron Man. Yeah, there, there's, uh, there was quite a few complaints about uh, his onboard computer, uh, and now in this game, even without the onboard computer, the, uh, this clearly applies to the many unlocks and costumes and gadgets and abilities that go so far beyond the Silver Age skill set. Why might this not actually be a bad thing at all? Because it gives you a visual representation of the things that his spider abilities have always given him anyway. You can now see that spider sense, because he's got a little thing in the top right-hand corner of his heads-up display that says somebody's approaching from this side, and his, his web shooters being technological. He's always been an inventor. He's always mm -hmm. been working with technology, but there's a lot of stuff in the past that got written off as, well, he has this because radioactive spider bite. And as a result, every time he did anything with any of those skills, he had to say, just a moment, my radioactive spider bite gives me super strength in this particular situation. <laughs> so honestly, I think it makes it better because you don't have to have the exposition every time. Jesse? Uh, I mean, yeah, I agree. The Peter's always been... A, an, an incredibly smart person, if not a genius. He's always been a tinker. It's, you know, people, when the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies came out, people were up in arms because of the organic web fluid, because it was always such a part of the Spider-Man canon that he invented those web shooters. He built them himself, you know, out of spare parts. I, I almost just quoted an Iron Man again in That's a cave. Bunch of scraps! But, <laughs> but, you know, the the fact that 
he is always, you know, he has always been tinkering with things and he's always been inventing stuff and, and making things and trying to make himself better. And, you know, he's really smart. There are only a couple of ways that you can really represent high intelligence in, you know, in comics or in games or in, in movies even really. And that's, you know, you can make them Sherlock Holmes. You can make them some kind of a, you know, genius detective. Like Batman. You can um, make them a like, computer like whiz Batman. hacker. Yeah. Or you can make them a tinker inventor. Like Batman. Like Batman. You know, or you can make them Batman, which is all of them. Like Batman. <laughs> They're all Batman. And, and, ex- and as well, on, on top of that as well, Jesse, the, with somebody where you're trying to show that intelligence, like you said, and that sense of self-development, that sense of wanting to constantly improve himself, you either make it organic and mythical and you tell the people who are absorbing that superhero story, you will achieve greatness because radioactive spider bite or, you know, or you're, you're born into it or it's just something that happens to be bespo- bestowed upon you. And then we are getting perilously close to special blood storylines. or you present it in a way that says you can do this if you apply yourself and you learn anybody could do this and that's always been one of the the central tenets of spider-man that was something that stan lee set out to do initially with with spider-man was that he wanted a hero that anyone could be and that was part of the point of having the full body suit with the mask was that anybody could be reading those comics and imagine themselves under that mask and that concept's really hit its stride in 2018 with uh, miles morales becoming more well known to people we've got this game bringing him to the front as this normal kid who mm-hmm. uh is destined to become a spider-man of himself <laughs> uh and also this movie coming out within just a few weeks from now uh the uh, i'm so excited i just even if i don't like the movie people in general will know about miles morales Mm -hmm. the the gadgets and the new suits and all of that they also allow for um they allow for a way to measure in a game anyway allow for a way to measure progression in a way that you would have a harder time doing in this type of an action beat em up because i mean yes hypothetically you could tweak the dials and and make peter stronger or make him faster or anything like that but one that's really hard to demonstrate and two it doesn't make a lot of sense in the story that they've set here because this is supposedly a 23 year old peter who's been doing this for eight years yeah. hypothetically he would have you know if not plateaued at least we wouldn't he's not a level one character if you get my meaning yeah he's not still discovering new things that the radioactive spider bite gave him that he's he didn't know he right. had yesterday yeah exactly also, the uh, whole I would like Spider-Man to not develop these new abilities is perilously close to I wish the Enterprise Bridge wouldn't keep changing from uh, from how it looked in the 60s. Because that's what we're talking about. <laughs> Spider-Man's original technology was bestowed upon him by Lee and Ditko in the 60s. Same kind of time frame as Star Trek. And mm-hmm. science moves forwards. It advances. It gets better and better. Spidey's enemies, much like Batman's enemies, keep getting more technologically advanced to the point where it's kind of worrying what's happening to these characters. Because Batman, especially in the the more recent Arkham game, is basically Iron Man now. Mm. He's got like a fully mechanized suit. The only difference being he doesn't have that faceplate over the, uh, the the front. Yeah, and also when you're talking about technology advancing and and not even like we're not talking cutting edge science and, and research and development here. 
levels that they teach at school, mm. primary mm-hmm. schools are teaching coding now. If you have a Spider-Man who can't code, he's behind his entire generation. Yeah. And communication. Right. Back in the uh, 60s, Peter had to talk to himself all the time uh, because that's all we had. Now everybody has a phone. Of course Peter is talking to people on the phone in the spider suit all the time. It right. actually makes him a way better, more personable character because he has this vast array, like Yuri and MJ and Aunt May. Mm-hmm. And like he, all of these people he's interacting with, as opposed to flying around the city, talking about himself all the time in the comics. <laughs> and again, working down that narrative line of the, the responsibility that being Spider-Man applies to him, if he has that phone in his back pocket, then every phone call is a new demand. Every person that he has contact mm. with while he's dealing with problem A is problems B, C and D that he's going to have to come back to later and it doubles down on that sense of he's always having to choose he's always having to make decisions about what's the higher priority in this moment where we are now is so much more conducive technologically speaking to a video game about spider-man than it ever has been in the past Mm, in terms of now you've got to get this done spider-man because (laughs) you can have it fed to you in a different way each time Mm. also he doesn't feature in this game tony stark but one of the mm-hmm. best things that ever happened in the Marvel comics, I, you know, uh, the, I, the problematic as it may be, the Civil War storyline, making Peter effectively the protege of Tony Stark and then replicating that in the MCU to an even better fashion because Peter's clearly a, a lot younger and has a lot of growing up to do and Tony's got so much to atone for. It gives Peter a direction. And honestly, the whole taking over from Stark thing. I mean, I, I, people said, oh, I don't want him just to be a mini Iron Man. Our movie, Tony Stark's going to be stepping down very, very mm-hmm. soon. And I don't, I don't like, I suspect there'll be a Tony Stark coming up, but I don't think they're going to try to do, you can't be the first memorable Tony Stark again. It'll be very difficult to top um, the Christopher Reeve Superman, the uh, Chris Evans Captain America, the Chris Hemsworth Thor, and the Robert Downey Jr. Tony Stark. But in terms of legacy characters, you've got Peter with Steve Rogers, Brooklyn, or uh, in his case, uh, Queens, uh, you know, small town kid, trying to do best for, uh, for everyone with this massive conscience. He's got the best of Steve there. And then you've got all of Tony Stark's technological know-how and abilities, but filtered through a kid who is, in the movies, piss poor, and in the games, right. not much you know, more affluent. He gets kicked out of his apartment. He's uh, an everyday Tony Stark, and that is by no means a bad thing, because... Mm-mm. Legacy is incredibly important in Marvel Comics. Mm. And he's never going to be a mini Tony Stark because, as you say, he doesn't have the, same the privilege that Tony has. He doesn't have the flaws right. Tony has. He's Anything he does, even with the skill, the technology, and even if Tony grants him access to all of his resources, he still isn't going to be the same person because he's always got that past, that existing network of people that Tony never had. In a way, Peter has so much more mm. than Tony has ever had. Mm. He never really placed overt value in Pepper and Rhodey and Happy. He never told them how mm. important they were yeah. until right. they turned into dust. Yeah. Can you imagine Peter Parker in even his lowest moment of weakness 
shucking the opportunity to go and deal with a, a, an ATM robbery because <laughs> two girls over there very attractive flirting with him. I can imagine <laughs> Peter Parker stopping to do some disco dancing and strutting down the street. <laughs> <laughs> that is indeed his lowest ebb. Hmm. On that point, though, this year Steve Ditko left us, and this week Stan Lee finally did too, after a lifetime of being a figurehead for the comic characters that he created. We owe them and Jack Kirby a debt that can never be repaid. And when re-watching the original cutscenes of this uh, this evening, when we got to the Stan Lee cameo, uh-huh. we were a little dusty. Uh-huh. It's funny, people ask me who my favorite superheroes are or is, as the case may be, I really don't have any because of the ones I've written. When I was writing each one, that was my favorite at the moment because I was all involved in him or in her. But um, I've been so busy just working on them that I've never had time to really think of who my favorites were. They're all like my children anyway. I think I love them equally the same. You know, just, uh, just dinner between friends. Friends? Is that what we are? Well, maybe we could be, you know, if, if, if that's what you wanted. There's a lot of baggage here. Yeah, sure, but is that so bad? I mean, baggage can carry good things, too, like, uh, like money and uh, keys and raspberry lip balm. Do you remember why we broke up? This is a trick question, isn't it? Saved by the siren. Talk to you later. Go. Love seeing you two together again. You always were my favorites. I almost always hate stealth sections. The Zelda games are noteworthy for containing some of my least favorite. But these (laughs) ones I tolerated. I even liked a few of them. What were the strengths at play here? Now, are you talking about the Spider-Man stealth sections or the other character stealth sections? Because they're... There's differences. There are differences, but you can incorporate all of them into your your general Uh stealth session discussion. Well, I think the Spider-Man stealth sections are... are, They're set apart from other stealth things just because of, again, Spider-Man's increased mobility and the fact that even though he's trying to be quiet, he can still be fast and we can still navigate to places... um, you know, very quickly. It's not a lot of, it's a lot of sneaking around, but it's not a lot of hunkering down and slowly sneaking from one point to another. If you need to get to the other end of the room because there's somebody there that you need to disable, you can just zip across and you're there. It it makes it a lot easier to, to get to the fun part of the stealth mission, which is sneaking up behind somebody that had no idea you were there and disabling them without a sound. Yeah. Uh, and the uh, on foot, there's uh, Miles and MJ both get their own stealth sections. So what what were good about these ones that you can think of? I I actually or, or liked. Were they not good? 
No, I mean, I I did enjoy them. Um, I, and I know that it's it's going to be kind of it's going to sound contradictory because I was just talking about how, you know, the Spider-Man stealth sections were great because you didn't have to stick or, you know slowly inch your way across things. But I felt like with the MJ and Miles sections, it was a nice it was a good change of pace and it was a good reminder that there are people in this world. There are normal, regular people that are trying to do the best that they can and can still do heroic things, even if they don't have superpowers. It's a, it's that it goes back to that reinforcing um, to the, the, the idea of the fact that anybody can be a hero and that it's, it's more of a mindset than special blood or radioactive spider bite that, you know, the tools that you have may be affected, but you can be heroic no matter what you have or don't have. Yeah. The, um, the, the Grand Central Station uh, stealth mission for MJ felt like all of the rest of the stealth missions in the game had been sort of coming to a head with that one. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a little bit of a kind of a fun spoiler, but like it's, it, you'll, you'll, if you haven't played the game, you can look forward to this bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, MJ gets caught in a hostage situation and calls to Spider-Man for help on her phone. So you get to kind of witness Spidey sneaking in externally so you're uh, crawling around as mj trying not to get seen and um mm-hmm. you can point to guys you want spider to take out for you from the ceiling i i didn't expect to just for that to be a situation in the game and to be that enjoyable you know having a spider-man buddy it was like oh i get to spend a weekend with <laughs> batman it was i could I did frankly have, a- have taken like half a game worth of that <laughs> Yeah, I, and that's actually one of the things I was kind of uh, disappointed about in the DLC. I don't know if you've played any of that yet. I have. Um, we're not going to talk about the. Oh, I wasn't planning to talk about the DLC because I figured just the main game itself would be mm-hmm. abundant with stuff to discuss. But sure. Uh, what what uh, happens in the DLC or doesn't happen? Well, I, I just I was hoping for more of those MJ and Miles moments, and mm. there there haven't been in the first DLC pack. Nuts. It was it was more focused on one of the other tertiary characters. Um, but there might there's two more, so you know maybe maybe they'll come up later. I don't know. I just I did really enjoy those, and I like the the change of pace. And I did have in the Grand Central Station uh, section, I had this weird dopey grin on my face the entire time I played through like through that. Be like, oh, that looked really cool. All of the all of them, honestly. Like there were a couple of times when I got nabbed, but again, I felt like that was my fault. But they have an economy of visual clarity, and it reminded me it's it's very difficult to do stealth in three D. It's easier to do it in two D. One of the best versions of it is uh, Mark of the Ninja, again that we so received good. an update. And I don't know if you can still do it, but if you already bought it on three sixty, you can get an upgraded version effectively for free on the, uh, Xbox One. But um, Mark of the Ninja, and we did a show on this, so definitely check that one out folks is very good at indicating when you're making noise when people can hear you if you're in shadow that people can see you or not and and it shows you with visual cues and sometimes audio cues i figured it would be really really difficult to do that in stealth and and like i said the zelda games are really really good at getting me to blunder straight into the uh, path (laughs) of a a guard Uh, they seem to delight in irritating me and it's it seems like in the Zelda games, the sudden change of pace to now you must move without ever being seen is only an annoyance to me. Whereas with Spider-Man, it was like, oh, okay, a new challenge. And yet I played the Tenchu games over the weekend. The original PlayStation 1 Tenchu, one of the first stealth games I ever played. I played it at the same time as Metal Gear Solid in 1998. 
and it's terrible. I loved it back in the day, but it is a terrible game for stealth now. It tells you nothing. You are a blundering buffoon. So I got the Wii version, played the update. It's Almost worse, considering how many years that elapsed in between time. Because you're more coordinated, but now you're flailing your arms around with waggle controls, which emphasise the lack of precision. But we were talking about Spider-Man, the Big Apple. They kept you very focused, you knew, you could clearly see where you were supposed to be going, and yet it didn't feel too much like a corridor. It, it felt more like that your character you know, had a purpose and was very decisive. And you were given just the right amount of tools to, you know, sort of like keep things in your favor. The little distraction thingies. If those had been limited, it would have made it really painful to play. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, the uh, it was an admirable uh, restraint on not doing too many of them and not stretching them out for too long and not making them too punishing. I, I trust Insomniac with doing this kind of stuff in the future. One thing that's striking me, actually, about a lot of what you've both said about the, the mechanics of the game is how well Insomniac have got the balance. That there are there's sliders of how easy you can make something, how challenging you can make something, how much variety of types of movement you can put into a game before it just becomes chaotic Mm. and they seem to have got the balance about in a zone where a lot of people feel very very happy with what they've produced Why do the side missions not feel like busy work? I think it goes back to, uh, I think there's, there's two points to it. One is again, if we can go back to the point of Manhattan feeling like a fully realized character, um, doing things to help the city is, I, I would almost be like the, to the equivalent of, um, the dialogue trees, like the going through the the whole dialogue stuff in a Mass Effect game or a Dragon Age game, like we're we're building rapport with the city character, and it it feels like you know you kind of get this this feel that when you help people or when you do nice things about folks, it's or for people, it it makes the city a little bit better and it makes the city kind of like you more. I know that it doesn't actually make the city like you more mechanically, but it. It feels that way because they've done they've done all the work in making the city feel like an authentic character. I think the other part of it is just going back to it's quintessentially Peter Parker. You know, he is the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And so, of course, we're going to want to stop and help people out and do all of these side missions. Um, I read a statistic recently that there were more platinum trophies for the Spider-Man game than any other game on PS4 that, that more people have gone through and done absolutely everything with this game than they have with anything else. And I think that's, that comes down to the, you know, the work that they've done to make it feel like it's worth it. 
that makes absolute sense. This is the one of the very few sandbox games that I was like, I can see a couple more thingies left to do on this. I, 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 <laughs> like, um, it, it rarely happened because I tended to to go through like every time you got handed a new uh, folder full of things to do, I would do all of them back to back just to sort of stay in mm-hmm. the zone of that. And I was delighted with how varied they were in and of themselves. The, the environmental missions you have to do for Harry, rather than just chase these things, chase these mm-hmm. things, chase these things, they, they mixed it up a bit. There were like four or five different types, and it never tended to outstay its welcome. They always seemed to be aware that like two more of these missions would just be a bit of a pain in the ass. So let's just just ease it back and let's not make them do that. So again, I, uh, with Zelda, there's, there was never that sense of, can I just have the Hillian shield, please? It's really important. No, <laughs> you must fly through these hoops. Do it in this time limit. It always felt very optional and, and uh, um, just something that I wanted to do because I didn't have to. Which, again, plays in with this responsibility, because almost all of them seemed to be doing something good. It wasn't mm-hmm. for personal gain. The, 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 the double whammy of not, it not being for personal gain, pretty much everything he does, and also not killing people. Right. There's so few games, so few action games where you're not Kill performing wholesale <laughs> slaughter. <laughs> Where you're not, you know, ending lives, like that you're actively mm-hmm. trying to save people, that narratively, like, there was no ludonarrative dissonance. Spider-Man was beating the living fuck out of a bunch of hoods, but he was keeping them all alive and I, trying to stop the villains from dying. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of trying to web the uh, people that ended up getting, like, punched or kicked off of the cliffs, and I always felt, or off of the buildings, the mm-hmm. cliffs, we're not Zelda, um... But I always kind of did feel a little bit bad about that because that was my own thing. Be like, this doesn't feel like a, a Peter Parker thing to do. I should have tried to web them up. That's uh, yeah. that's a good idea. But it doesn't matter because if you actually stop for a moment and look and watch them fall, they get webbed to the side of the building anyway. They don't die. Oh, do they? Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. I like, I didn't notice until I saw someone say that. And I was like, okay, so I'm just going to stop and look. And they go plummeting down where I'd normally be turning my attention to someone else. And I'm like, hold on a second, hold on, hold on. Whoa, whoa. Oh, and he's fine. He's fine. On with the fight. Okay, boom. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that, that's that's great. inspired because you know you'd be like, and nobody died. Excuse me, and nobody died. <laughs> but it is it is the Disney death. They fell, and it was their own fault. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. It was their own fault. I was moving my fist, and their face was in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> I'm going to start shoving towards the edge of the balcony, and if we fall off, <laughs> it's your own fault. Okay. I do think that part of the ease, like you were, you were talking about how they never felt forced and they didn't didn't drag on the side missions. I think a part of that is how well the mini-map is constructed, because, mm-hmm. or I guess the, the map is constructed, because not only do we get to see everything out there, but we get an idea, you can see just by the icon, what type of mission it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can allow yourself to kind of pace that out and feel like, all right, I am, you know, I just did a bunch of beat up stuff. I'm not going to take this taskmaster, this task master thug challenge or the combat challenge. I'm going to go do something else. Um, so you could sort of self pace and, and hit the ones that you wanted to. Um, so it, it never really had a chance to, to feel overrun mm. because there was always something else to try. 
And New York's a New York is a uh, fantastically arranged city in real life, and it just so happens that Spider Man has the best way of moving around it. <laughs> so I mean, I, again, I'm just repeating the same thing again, but it's uh, Lee and Ditko came up with, oh, wouldn't it be great if he was swinging between the buildings? Yes, yes, it would. <laughs> See, here's the thing: when you say New York is a brilliantly designed city. One of the first things that annoyed me about when we got to New York was like, right, okay, I have this entire city at my my disposal. I want to walk diagonally. No, nope. you can't. It will be left to right or up to down. <laughs> but Peter can go diagonally. He can. <laughs> Although it's harder than just going left to right or up to down. Indeed, um, yeah. There are one or two side missions. That uh, the one where he, I think, is actually one of the main missions where he gets evicted from his apartment and he has to go dumpster diving and chase mm-hmm. after his stuff. That was incredibly endearing. It was such a small t- town, like you know, this stupid shit happened to you. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, he, it, it is connected with the, the the main plot and his sort of communicating with the uh, guy in charge of sanitation just to try and find this truck so that he can get his just his his flash drive back. Uh, right. it, it, it felt. Like kind of a a thing that gets done in New York. Like if you do get evicted, you've got to go and chase that stuff. That felt real in a way that no amount of horse testicles is going to match up to. But the the one with the pigeons. Do you remember that one where there's an old guy on the roof? And uh, he's like, chase this pigeon. And so I just chased him for you. And I was like, I kind of got my, my... uh, head wrapped around this one but after a while he's like talking about his wife who previously mm-hmm. owned the pigeons and is has now passed on and he was talking about how you know it feels like you're bringing part of her back to him and i was just like i am gonna get every last one of these pigeons sir yep. and then he's like you know drop in any time and i was like i've made a friend here like i <laughs> i love this game it made me feel like i was actually making a difference like i think that insomniac did a really good job of focusing where to put the time. You know, if we're if we're contrasting with Red Dead, uh, you know, they Rockstar spent so much time and so much effort to make everything feel simulation-y at the cost of pacing. Whereas Insomniac made all of their decisions in terms of how can we how can we make this engross the story how can we make new york feel more real how can we make this feel like a more real experience did you you wrote about the dialogue or did you hear about the the dialogue recording oh that yuri lowenthal the voice actor for peter parker they had him record every line of uh of uh non-story dialogue twice and once he's recorded and it's just rested, it's talking, it's calm, it's collected. And then they had him record the same line over again, more uh, breathy and exerted like he was like he was working out. And they've programmatically gone and they'll switch between those modes depending on what you're doing. So and it's so detailed that if you start a conversation resting on top of a water tower and then halfway through the conversation start zipping across the city, it will switch the next line will go from calm to exerted. And that's that's the type of immersion that I want. You know, you can keep your horse balls. 
<laughs> My balls appear to have frozen. You can keep your horse balls. We it's keep gonna, taking pot shots become... at Red Dead. It's not one or the other, folks. You can we can have both <laughs> these wonderful but games. But I th- I'll tell you what, though. What seems to be? But you're right. You can keep your horse balls. Fundamentally <laughs> different about these two things, and uh, I am always very open about the fact that everything that we review on this show, everything that we talk about, I am coming at it from a personal angle, um, and that the the things that I'm going through and dealing with at any given time are going to influence how I interpret and how I view that piece of media because media is fluid and flexible and a million different Mm -hmm. people can interpret it a million different ways. And things have a tendency to kind of, when one thing is falling in my lap, other things tend to link to it so that I get nice through lines and it's very helpful and it helps me to work shit out and I appreciate it greatly. One of the things that I'm reading about at the moment is the difference between goals and values. Mm. And that there is a difference between trying to live your life in accordance with goals that you have set for yourself. And when you achieve them, you're left kind of standing there for a moment going, okay, and what do I do now? Because the goals themselves, while they're good marker points to how you're progressing through your life they don't tell you what direction to go in. They don't necessarily... Sometimes you'll get a sequence of goals that all link together, but they don't necessarily lead in a certain way. That's what your values do. That's what the, the, the code, if you like, that you live your life by does for you. That when you reach that point where you've hit that goal, you don't need to stop and think what direction to go in next because your values are already taking you in the direction that you want to go in. In an ideal mm-hmm. world, obviously, if there's <laughs> difficulty in your life, then there may be things that are obstacles to you being able to live out those values or... Uh, you know, things that prevent you from being able to do that. With Spider-Man, you don't have to think about the values that are going to lead you through that game because you're playing Peter Parker. And you know what Peter Parker's values are. They are baked into his story. (laughs) Great power comes great responsibility. And if at any point in that game you find yourself stood on the top of a building, not entirely certain which way to go next... With great power comes great responsibility is right there. And it will tell you which way to go next. And with something which is more expansive and, inverted commas, realistic, and (laughs) not guided by any core sense of value, but may give you the option to use your own values to lead you through the world, you've got to sit and work out what those values are. And... Either you do the shortcut of translating your real-world values into that game, in which case the game simply becomes an extension of how you live your real life, Mm -hmm. in which case it better be giving you something really unusual and exciting to do, otherwise why am I sitting here playing this video game and not just getting up and going to work? Then, unless you're a Spider-Man. Unless you're Spider-Man, exactly. <laughs> oh, the, the, the mission title I loved was My Other Other Job. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was great. And, and this is the thing, though. Everything that's woven into this story that I've seen is about Peter's values and how he struggles to zipline down the direction that those values really want to take him but he's constantly got all these side quests and all these other demands that are being thrown into his lap and he's constantly having to make choices about that and I 
haven't seen much that deviates from that core direction. And that seems to me to be one of the things that has made this game so popular and so good. There is one single aspect of Peter's morality and his his uh, code that I find deeply problematic, uh, but I'm 95% with you there. Um, I don't like... I don't like the way that the game and Peter handle uh, police and morality and crime as a rule. Um, I feel like, th- you know, this is a universe and a Spider-Man that is, you know, the morality here is very, very almost naively black and white. It's it's a, a world where every criminal deserves it and every cop is a hero. It's something where, you know, Peter Parker is not only failing to question the moral implications of an invasive citywide surveillance system, but he enthusiastically helps to get it up and running. Mm. It's, it's a universe where one of Spider-Man's quips is about people committing crimes because they're too lazy to get a real job. And these little things are really at odds with what I feel like Peter Parker should be. And what I feel like Spider-Man should be, I feel like that's not a stance that it's okay to take in 2018 America. Not it's, unless your your narrative arc is to realize that that's a ridiculous oversimplification by the end. Exactly. You know, this is supposed to be... Spider-Man has is, is always been a hero of the people, and those two pieces made it feel a little bit more like he was our... You know, he's a hero of the status quo. He's our friendly establishment Spider-Man, if you will. Yeah. That does add an interesting layer onto it, though, if you come to it with that perspective yourself um, because one of the things about Peter is he is naive and we're used to seeing him as a kid I personally do prefer the slightly older Peter who's been doing this mm-hmm. for a while and has tried to find or, or has to find other ways of, of implementing his way of looking at the world in, in a, a more adult way and ultimately, the, the guy in this story is still only in his very early 20s. He does still have an awful lot of world out there to, to go and deal with. And I honestly think, I, I, mean, I mean, I agree with you, Jesse. I do think that that's mm. something that, that there is potentially the space in here to explore that in, in more detail than they allow it. But I think it fits with Peter to have that perspective because because of that, with great power comes great responsibility. He has to believe that people who are given power will take responsibility. And one of the things about all the characters in this in this game, good guys, bad guys, incidental, everybody who who has sort of an interactive actual speaking role, they are all given or take responsibility in different ways some of them do it in ways that are very self-sacrificing and and very much for the good of of the community and some of them do it in ways which are very controlling and verge on harmful and some of them do it in ways that are blinkered by their own personal hurts and their own personal experiences and I think the the way that that is woven in together while you, you're right, and that needed more elements of that in there. 
I do think that it, having that naivety about it does fit with the character, and potentially that is something that they could explore in future games. It could be. Maybe. <clears throat> uh, this is not to excuse it at all. It's, uh, it's to urge um, the uh, writers to actually address this. It could be uh, examined as a character flaw of Peter's himself as a reaction to his being too lazy to do anything about the burglar who ends up killing Uncle Ben... He has to see every criminal as someone who needs to be punched the fuck out as soon as possible before they can hurt other people. Mm. Uh, And that he, uh, to a degree, his almost Tony Stark-like blinkered level of, no, if you're a criminal, I have got to take you down. Mm. Again, that that could work as an excellent piece of uh, storytelling. But you've you've Mm -hmm. got the framework for that to be explored later on. The whole setup of Feast... The, the fact that you're constantly in and out of the Bowery, these things mm-hmm. point to to anybody with an understanding of, of New York and its history. The the people at the bottom, the the guys who the you know, the people who have been forced down and down and down until they have nowhere else to go. You're not telling me that there isn't some criminal activity going on there that you know, people who look at things in a very black and white way would say, well, they don't deserve to be given food, emergency aid, shelter and training because they have done bad things because they're incredibly poor and desperate and forced into corners. Feast and what you just described, um, Jesse, don't actually Mm -hmm. gel with one another narratively because Mm -hmm. one of them is an open hand and the other one's a closed fist. And that a lot of the time comes from what in another way is naive and is a black and white way of looking at things which is to say that there are deserving poor people and undeserving poor people which is bullshit frankly if you have the ability to make it so that people are not poor and not living in horrendous environments that provide them with struggle and hurt and you feel like you can sit there in judgment and say, well, I will give this to A because they deserve it and not B because they don't, then you're, you're doing it wrong. But <laughs> that itself is a really great conundrum for Peter to feel, yeah. to, for him to actually experience. Again, this is required for some narrative, mm-hmm. uh, a future date, or in just in, a, in another medium. Yeah, Fingers crossed. And this actually ties directly into my uh, soapbox for the spoiler bit later. So we'll, we'll, I'll come back to this. Okay, come back to that. Um, one other thing about the uh, side missions, uh, they are the way that uh, previous games used to, and again, Zelda does this. I don't know why I keep coming back to Zelda. It's just it's a, it's an excellent <laughs> example of an expansive open world game, and uh, has been for quite some time. Uh, most of the like the dungeon will train you in how to use an item. In the case right. of the, uh, the the side missions, they will effectively train you in how to do what you're going to be asked to do later in the game. So you can skip them, but if you do them, you're going to be a better Spider-Man. Right. I, that's one of the things that you've had to constantly tell me about Zelda, because I'm like, why am I having to do this? It's pointless. <laughs> and you're like, well, no, they're teaching you how to it's use training. the thing. Yeah. <laughs>
yes, you're right. The score is really, really good. It's a, it's an amazing mix of. Uh, sometimes it feels like the um, the Danny Elfman uh, score for the uh, Raimi films. Then occasionally you'll you'll get what feels like the Avengers theme coming in, which also ties in with the uh, Homecoming theme. But very occasionally you'll get the trumpets of James Horner's Amazing Spider-Man One theme. Horner, just like Lee and Ditko left us not too long ago. This was his last significant score. replaced with uh, Hans Zimmer and uh, Junkie XL did the Amazing 2 but it very rarely sounds like Amazing 2 but (laughs) (laughs) there's nowhere near enough dubstep The more and more I think about it, the more I wish Amazing 1 and 2 had just never happened. That there'd just mm-hmm. been a lengthy grace period between Spider-Man 3 and Homecoming. And that, yeah. uh, that they just the un- un- unspeakable discontent that the uh, Andrew Garfield... Uh, and, and that, you know, this is your destiny because you have special blood to be Spider-Man films. I mean, what they achieved, if nothing else, was give us the Gwen Stacy story in short order. Yeah. Now, what were some details that engaged you with Peter's allies? So, uh, MJ and Otto and May. Um, what, what things made you feel like you were connecting there? I really liked that MJ had... She was a lot more active in this. She had a lot more agency than I've seen uh, in in her character in a lot of representation. Um, I really felt like... I really felt like she was Peter's partner through most of this um as opposed to just the girl that gets kidnapped and you know i i i really appreciated being you know that was one of the things that i really liked about the stealth missions again was that we got to see that mj is a capable person and a capable good you know uh hero in her own right and that she's not just an extension of Spider-Man. I think giving her the role of the Daily Bugle reporter was a, a stroke of brilliance because it gives us, it gives her a reason to be in those dangerous situations that is more than just somebody found out Spider-Man's secret identity and he's trying to go after the people that he loves. Mm. 
MJ is uh, in this, without a doubt, by a New York mile, my favourite version <laughs> of MJ so far. Absolutely. I've, I've read a whole bunch of different writers writing the comics. You can't really say comic version of MJ because mm-hmm. there's been so many different versions of her. They're different right. writers, different takes, different artists. But really, it comes down to to what she's doing in the story and how she's affecting it. Far too often, it's just, oh, God, being Spider-Man's girlfriend slash wife is tricky. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this, she's definitely a person with her own life going on. And she's, she's exemplary of how the characters interact in this game. I was really blindsided by the engagement levels of the characters, there's a quiet and an uncertainty about every interaction. Like, nobody wants to hurt anybody. Mm -hmm. And they're aware that hurt has gone on in the past. And this pretty much extends to everyone that Peter talks to. Like, you know, when when he talks to uh, Octavius, he's... There's, there's times when it feels like he's walking on eggshells, but there's warmth in there too. And because of that push-pull of, I don't want to hurt you, and they don't want to hurt Peter, mm-hmm. and because it was always brought down in such a restrained fashion, it felt very human in a way that obviously soaring over the rooftops felt very superhero. <laughs> so you had these two very distinct worlds that sold themselves to you with... Uh, a contrast and a clarity. Mm. Well, it, I think this is a really important example of how you have to balance human connection with big picture do-gooding, for want of a better word, in superhero stories. Because if all they are is flying above everybody doing their thing, you don't get the connection which is the reason why they're doing it in the first place and then Mm -hmm. you end up with with a character who is very detached and very cold and you start to lose sympathy for them and you start to lose empathy for for what's leading them down the path that they're going down and honestly I think if they'd gone if they'd taken a right turn when they went left with Tony Stark a couple of times that's where they'd have ended up Mm-hmm. And certainly the, there is the potential for them to go that route with uh, Doctor Strange. Although I think it, it, how that is handled could still be a very compelling story in and of itself. But with Peter, who is a very ground-level hero, you cannot lose that sense of connection. Otherwise, it becomes futile. It, it's just, why is he even bothering mm-hmm. if it's not for the mm-hmm. people in his life? And there's another element of that the responsibility theme infusing everybody's behaviour in this and, and what you said about MJ having stuff going on that's that's you know her her life outside Peter as it were, everybody has that. And mm-hmm. everybody is is doing stuff all day, every day, and the vast majority of them are doing things that they think will make this city better. And it makes Peter's mission seem a lot less lonely, even though he himself may be isolated in some ways because he can't tell many people that he is Spider-Man. Right. That feeling of him being surrounded by people who in their own way are trying to achieve the same things that he's trying to achieve means that that connection goes both ways. It's not just that he has to get back down to ground level to save May or save MJ or protect Otto or, you know... 
steer Miles on the right path. They are feeding him as well. And MJ's been kidnapped. You've got to rip your mask a bit so that some of your face can show and then show up at the bad guy's <laughs> lair so that you can have that fight to the death with him. Absolutely. But instead... While MJ screams. What you get is... And, and again, because he's been doing this for eight years, and this isn't something that I saw expressed in any dialogue or that was necessarily outlined particularly clearly, but something I got really strongly is that the reason MJ has gone down the route she's gone and, and become this investigative reporter who's desperate to uncover bad stuff and and make things better is because Peter's inspired her over the years and all right their relationship might have tanked because Mm -hmm. the the realities of of trying to conduct a straightforward relationship under the pressure of he's got to disappear every time the sirens go past is something that at, at their age they weren't able to navigate particularly well doesn't change the fact that she has masses of admiration for who he is and what he does and seems to want to do a bit of that herself. And so he then, in turn, has great admiration for her because she's doing that without the aid of a radioactive spider bite. Right. <laughs> and that, that was something as well. Speaking of, of details, the, the interactions between the two of them that, that were Peter respecting her abilities and not having this constant, you can't do this, MJ, because because you're only a human and I need to protect you and and I'm I'm terrified that you're going to get hurt. It's still there. He's still terrified that she's going to get hurt, but he has accepted that she is an adult and she can make her own decisions and there are times when he has to back the fuck off and let her do her job. I think one of the things that speaks so well about the way that the story is written is that you, even though you do get those those moments where Peter's like, I can't let anything happen to you. You know, it worries me to see you in all of these, these bad situations. You, it's framed in such a way that you know that Peter is, I don't want to say in the wrong, but you know that the right decision is, is for him to back off and let her do her thing. And so when she goes off and does something, so that might get put her into a sticky situation where she needs rescuing, you don't get that sense of her being damseled. You get the sense of, you know, her making a decision and doing something and being a capable person who just got in over her head and had to lean on a, on the help of a friend. Mm, absolutely. And and that you've got other people in the story as well who are, who are doing that. So like with Yuri, it's her job. There is, you know, she's so suffused with this, protector of the city role that she has you would never dream of saying to her you can't do this thing because you need to be protected and it's honestly it's always baffled me slightly that Mm. that trope gets used so regularly purely to indicate that the hero is isolated and that we're going to keep him isolated by making him have to break up with the girl that he's desperately in love with because he's terrified that something's going to happen to her. You know what? If you break up to up with her, things are still going to happen to her. Bad <laughs> stuff is not going to stop happening to her just because she's not your girlfriend. Anymore. That was the core concept of all five of the pre-MCU Spider-Man films. You can't yeah. be near this woman, being Spider-Man will kill her. Mm-hmm. And eventually the final the final punctuating note was and it did. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? If you'd never met her, that might still have happened. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> this game gives us a long-form, serialised, mature version of the world that we haven't seen before. I've been waiting for 
when I read the Straczynski Spider-Man books from a while back, when Peter comes back and becomes a teacher uh, after mm-hmm. uh, things have ended with MJ, and he's an adult, uh, I was thinking this would work as a really good TV show, but they couldn't make a, a superhero TV show. This was... <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, my sweet speed. summer child. Um, but, but honestly, I thought, you can't do Spider-Man. Like, you can maybe do, I don't know, Daredevil, but you couldn't do um, because at the time um, uh, Brian Michael Bendis was doing a very sort of like law focused Daredevil run, so it was a lot of like Daredevil had been outed and Matt Murdock was well, Matt Murdock had been outed as Daredevil and he was kind of trying to defend that in in the courts. And I was like, you could do that on TV, but with Spider Man swinging about the place, you can't do that well on TV. They tried in the seventies, wasn't good. But every TV show about Spider-Man's for kids, it's it's very sort of animated. The only one of them that has been kind of more adult-focused was the uh, New Adventures of Spider-Man. That was in 2003. Horrible to look at by today's standards. It's got that, it's that sort of polygonal, um, like, uh, 3D computer animated one. But this is mature, and by mature I mean handling things like adults, not throwing mm-hmm. profanity and rape and torture at us. Uh, right. and, and, and as Sharon said, it seems like everyone has lives outside of Peter's affairs, which makes it feel richer, uh, rather than purely existing to serve his plot. And as you guys have been saying, he isn't tortured. He isn't like, uh, you know, standing on rooftops going, no one can know my loneliness and pain. Quite the opposite. He needs these people in support to keep him going. This is the first real representation of Spider-Man um, apart from, say, I think Spectacular kind of really followed up on this one, which made it clear that Peter needs a family around him of friends and work colleagues and acquaintances and actual family relatives to just just to keep finding the strength to be Spider-Man every day. Mm. It's, yeah. it's quite the opposite of, I can't know you, you'll die because I'm Spider-Man. It's a much more mature kind of, I can't be Spider-Man without all of you guys. Absolutely. And and to make yeah. that role sustainable as well, this was something I was so impressed with and grateful for. And I and it occurred to me how rare we see this when it isn't just the girlfriend saying, But you gotta talk to me and tell me about what's going on in your life. Women, they always want to talk. Absolutely. And it's <laughs> it's usually still juxtaposed with the hero reaching the conclusion that I can't tell anybody my deep dark secret because it would put them at risk. What Peter experiences in these conversations and interactions is being repeatedly told, let people help you. Admit mm-hmm. you're human. Concede when you can't do something. Tell us when you have a hard decision to make. Share it with us. Don't bottle it all up and pretend it's not happening because it will kill you and it will sure as fuck stop you from being able to be Spider-Man. There's a point where he's walking... I I can't even remember for the life of me where he was, but he's just thinking idly about um, the fact that he had a, a late night because of something that went down and felt like crap the next day. And he says to himself... I've got to make sure that I get a decent night's sleep. I can't keep doing this if I'm not looking after myself. And I thought, the people that surround this Peter have taught him that self-care is really key and that he can't... He couldn't do his job uh, with Otto if he wasn't sleeping, eating generally speaking, looking after himself and having people around him who care about him and encourage him to look after himself. 
and not in an obtrusive way as well. May is not smothering. She's not constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, she's actually quite delicate. Yeah, absolutely. She's she is very subtle. There's only one or two places where she overtly, kind of almost forces help on him, and <laughs> they're in circumstances where he really, really needs it at that point. Yeah. And should have asked for it beforehand. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, but she doesn't, again, she doesn't do it in a way that's sort of just reminding everybody that here's this incredibly elderly and frail person who, yes, loves him and, yes, cares for him, but ultimately is another burden for him to deal with. She is not a burden. Nobody in this is a burden. They all no. bring him strength, and that's really important. Parker, Dr. Octavius. I, uh, what you got there? Chinese. If I know you'd be here, I would have... What are you working on? Oh, just a side project. Otto Octavius has just discovered Peter in their lab, working on the Spider-Man costume. Of course. It's you. I, uh, I I, I don't know what you're... Oh, come on, Parker, it's obvious. Let me explain. I only wish you'd told me sooner. I wanted to, but I was afraid that if word got out... My family might be in danger. Huh. Yes. Ah, I guess if you design his equipment, you're bound to be a target too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't worry. Your secret's safe. By the same token, what made the antagonists compelling in this game? Part of it for me was uh, one of the consequences of setting this game eight years after he started being Spider-Man. And that is that all of these villains, all of these antagonists that we see already have a history with Spider-Man. We're not, they're, they're not trying to sell us on he's meeting this new threat for the first time with the exception of Mr. Negative. But when you see all of the other villains that we face, these are people that he knows, like he already has it sounds weird to say that he has a rapport built up with these people, but they already have a relationship. He knows what to expect. He, they, they have this history. They have things that they can go back and forth about in terms of stuff that happened between us in the past. And it, it makes them feel a little bit more like, more like people because they're not just this person that's angry with Spider-Man or angry with New York for no reason. They're, we get to see some of the motivations behind these people because of that history that they already have with Peter going in. There was one antagonist that I actually think was kind of a weak point, and it's not a spoiler to say, and that was Jameson. Yeah. He's hilarious to listen to because he's ranting <clears throat> on the radio. My favorite one was when he was talking about Spider-Man has been chasing pigeons, and I know why. He's eating them. You know, I found out, I've been sent notification by some of our uh, courageous listeners uh, about the bird-eating spider. Well, it stands to reason. And uh, this version of JJ is almost as funny as, say, the one in Spectacular or, uh, indeed, the, 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 like, the, the, the one true king of JJ, uh, which is JK. But here's the problem. They're doing what may have started out as Glenn Beck, but then became kind of Bill O'Reilly, but then kind of morphed. Uh, I was going to say Alex Jones into Alex Jones. Here is the problem with that. J. Jonah Jameson, when the chips are down in the comics, even in the movies and in Spectacular, Mm -hmm. is a good man at heart. 
He is a man who, when he's uh, presented with the ability to shop Peter Parker in, doesn't. Uh, he is uh, presented as a man who, when he realizes that his uh, newspaper's been printing bullshit, gets angry with the people who have, uh, have made uh, them out to be liars. He cares about the efficacy of it. He hates Spider-Man. He hates mm-hmm. men who wear masks. He is irrational in that. He won't examine that. And he has a vendetta to go, this guy's a menace! And that's kind of his thing. But J. Jonah Jameson is a good journalist at heart. This guy, modelled on Alex Jones, is modelled on a man who is a fake. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. And I'm not saying people didn't naturally have homosexual feelings. I'm not even getting into it. You think I am like, oh, shocked by it, so I'm up here bashing it because I don't like gay people. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Serious crap. Wow. He spouts dribbling conspiracy theories to drum his audience into a frenzy of anger and fear, then tells them to buy his vitamins and health products in order to both survive the liberal tide and keep his show going like it's a telethon in support of a hate-mongering fuckwit. There is caveman true paleo formula with bone broth, a chocolate-flavoured drink mix made from bee pollen, stevia and the dust of chicken skeletons. Now, according to InfoWars, it is one of the most popular new health trend in the world today. And by the look on Jones's face, it tastes exactly as good as it sounds. You pour that in on a couple ice cubes, and folks, it tastes, when it's creamy and thick, I think better than Ovaltine. And it has got all the bone broth and so much more. This is why the ancients, they believe, were, had such better bones and were so much healthier. You can look it up. This, you could freeze this, and this would be better than, like, bluebell chocolate ice cream. Hmm. Alex mm. Jones, the, char- the person we know, is a character that that man plays to get ratings, to get a rabid following from right-wing shitheads. He plays up to it. It's been proven. It's been established. He even admitted it in court to get off a rap. That guy is a fake. So what you've got here is kind of like life headbutting up against art and it not quite working. JJ can't be fake, can't be made up. That ranting has to come from somewhere authentic. And the person I want to see most is J. Jonah Jameson in the MCU. Now, this is just me, and I'm sure that other people will be like, what is George Clooney? Because George Clooney can do really funny kind of, my hair, in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And he's got a great screen presence. But I want to see him, like, doing JJ up to the point where suddenly ethics are questioned at the Daily Bugle. And you see that what that man is at his core is an editor who wants to see the truth get out. And he genuinely believes that Spider-Man is a menace. This fucker on the radio is a fraud. I want somebody who's going to rant and rave about how Spider-Man is a menace, but still not give up Peter Parker when, you know, under threat of death. Yeah. You know, that was something that really showed the character of who Jameson was in the Raimi movie, like you said. And this guy is just a hollow garbage human that needs to be kicked off of Facebook and Twitter. Mm. It's important to note, by the way, that Alex Jameson has had real... (laughs) Alex Jameson. (laughs) 
It's important to note, by the way, that Alex Jones has had real-world consequences and has influenced the political climate of America. This character that he plays, this pretend Howard Stern but super right-wing, has actually boiled the blood of enough people to genuinely affect dreadful change, and it's just self-serving. He's rather like another person who's currently in a position of obscene power, who doesn't believe in what they're saying, but does say it because he knows it'll get him attention. I think this version of Jameson would have been a lot funnier in 2008. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, that behavior, when you know it's causing real-world harm, is evil. It is Mm. a true evil in our times. And I never want to think of Jameson as evil. A shithead sometimes, (laughs) but a smart shithead? Um, Sable was also really nice to see. I would have liked to see Sable in there more. And it kind of like that her and Felicia made me go, maybe maybe that... um, that Black Cat and Silver Sable movie will be good. Oh, apparently it's not happening anymore. Uh, although Sony might do a Black Cat solo movie and a Silver Sable solo movie. It is worth noting that uh, most of the uh, support characters, including Silver Sable, their models in the game are basically just the voice actors. Um, nice. If you actually go look at look at them, the woman who plays Silver Sable, her name escapes me right now, but she looks very similar to to the character. Uh, same with Aunt May, same with Martin Lee, Rio Morales, uh, Norman Osborn even. And uh, hypothetically, they've already got a Silver Sable they could cast. Nice. Can she do backflips? Probably. This is probably the best uh, performance capture that I've seen in a video game outside of a Naughty Dog, uh, outside of a, an Uncharted or um, The Last of Us. It is most definitely on a par with both of those. Yeah, oh, it, and it just Josh goes back Keaton to... played Electro. I've just uh, seen that here. He was uh, Electro's <laughs> only in it for a little bit, but Josh Keaton, who played Spectacular Spider-Man, comes in as Electro. Random bit of trivia that nobody will probably care about, but me. Um, you mentioned Laura Bailey as uh, MJ. MJ. Mm. Travis Wellingham, I think, plays Wilson Fisk, <laughs> and those two were married in real life. Oh, seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mentioned this before regarding the villains. Peter tries his best not to hurt them, which informs on his character as well as the villains. They all seem human and yet dangerous. They've got this determination to achieve their goals. And that seems to take precedence over any sense of gloating. It seems like the the voice director and the scripting, uh, they they really focused on the... They're not going, Godspeed, (laughs) Spider-Man! It's not that kind of cartoonish version of Spider-Man. It's... And at the same time, it's not like trying to be so grim dark. It's a wonderful tightrope balance between those two. One word. Yeah. Motive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you have a villain whose sole or antagonist whose sole motivation appears to be because evil, because script says so, and therefore I have to be, and you don't give any in-world hint at why they might be the way they are. Possibly why Jameson felt so thin. Yeah. Then Mm -hmm. that's what's going to happen. And there is a world of difference. Again, using the Sam Raimi Spider-Mans as an example, the uh, Norman Osborn power. Power and money, and that's it. There's nothing to tell, really, why he feels the way he does. And there's, I suppose you, you do get one or two very subtle background details like the portrait of the wife who's conspicuously mm-hmm. absent but you have to like infer that. a lot exactly, from that you have to infer masses harry on the other hand 
you see how he gets treated by his father. It is pretty clear why he turns out the way he does. And therefore, for me, in those movies, Harry will always be a better and more three-dimensional character than Norman was. Or than Dr. Mm-hmm. Octopus. Mm, yeah. And we've talked uh, at length about all the Spider-Man films. We did lengthy Spider-Man uh, uh, episodes <laughs> on, on each of them. And uh, I don't want to kick the Raimi films when they're down. They were <laughs> very important at the time. I'll give them that. They they con- sure. they conveyed the superhero to the big screen in a way that Brian Singer's X-Men simply could not do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, like I said, of, of the villains, Peter tries his best not to hurt them and repeatedly to redeem and save them. Like, you know, he fights them, but there's, it's when you're going up against the Shocker, you're actually trying to stop him from destroying himself at that point. It's a little fight, but it's exemplary characterization. And yes, man always seems to be in, like, every aspect of these missions is always trying to minimize damage. the hurt and minimize the damage you know a large portion of the of the side missions like the the car chase missions are you know you you get everybody beat up all the criminals out of the car throw them out of the car and then it's a they make a big point of making you stop the car safely the like there are pieces where he's like wrapping up cranes and sticking them to buildings to keep them from falling on folks and these make up like these integral quick time events that are, you know, that I, I feel like in a lot of other, it could have gone the other way where these things just fell on people and, you know, we would be left wanting and thinking like, well, nobody cares. And how many people has he accidentally killed? But yeah. we can see. But this isn't Batman v demonst- Superman. <laughs> yeah, we, we can demonstrably see that he's doing literally everything in his power to minimize people getting hurt and that carries over to the villains that's not something that you can just switch off he's not going to be like oh i've got to keep this this one person from getting hurt but now it's time to just murder scorpion or anything like that It's, it's again part of that pervasive attitude that peter just holds there was that wonderful bit of damage minimizing when he was at the front of the uh, subway train. It was like, it didn't work. He was like, ah, that worked before. And then it came crashing through to the street from below after he'd slowed it down. And it's the end of speed. And I was like, well, that's really lovely. Did you notice that before he did that, before he pulled the track up and made that, he called Yuri and said, is there still construction on this street? So even in that moment, he was making sure he wasn't going to hurt anyone. Yeah, exactly like Stark when he's got, uh, in Age of Ultron, he's got Hulk and he's like, okay, Jarvis, have we got time to buy this building before he comes (laughs) crashing through it? (laughs) Okay. So now I think it's time to talk about the ending, because I don't want to drag this one out. And uh, folks who haven't uh, played the game, you know what you got to do. Uh, if uh, Honestly, the stuff that you're going to find out from this, I found out midway through while I was playing it, it actually made my game better. So you might want to stick around for it. The whole idea of spoilers actively spoiling the, the the game or the film or the TV show being a black and white thing where it just if you know anything, then it's ruined, isn't anywhere near as simple as that sometimes it can make it better so it's your choice folks but after this music we're going to be talking about end game content
You said you had a soapbox. Yes. With the with respect to Rikers, um, the big opening set piece mission that starts off Act 3 is that the power goes out at Rikers and all of the prisoners escape. And you, as Spider-Man, have to go and contain everything. And then for the rest of the game, for the rest of the story sequence, there are these Rikers prison escapees that are wreaking havoc throughout the city, city, and you have to go put them right and, you know, basically just beat the hell out of them and get them back into prison. The problem with that is that Rikers isn't the raft. It's not Iron Heights. It's not some made-up supermax prison that exists for the, you know, just in this comics universe. Rikers is a real facility. It's not even a prison it's a jail uh does that distinction matter on the uk like do you have that uh but uh, can you can you delineate the difference yeah so um when a prison is a facility for long-term incarceration so you've been sentenced to serve three years five years ten years for a crime you're going to serve that sentence in a prison a jail is for short-term incarceration, that's that's uh, time less than a year, or uh, pre-incarceration. So if you've committed, uh, committed a crime or been accused of a crime, been arrested, but haven't gone to trial yet, you're in jail if you can't make bail. Rikers has around 10,000 inmates, 80% of whom are awaiting trial. These are, you know, and even the people that are actually incarcerated there are serving time they're serving less than a year so we're talking misdemeanor offenses these are non-violent offenders drug charges theft that sort of thing it's also a facility that's well documented as having a history of abuse of the inmates you know physical abuse sexual assault wrongful solitary Uh, these people are being horribly horribly mistreated and you know to the point that new york is actually trying to close down Rikers right now so that they can, you know, open up new facilities that are better treated and have, you know, more modern infrastructure because the the jail's been around since like the 1920s, I think. But, you know, these are these are nonviolent offenders that the game treats as murdering psychopaths. And we spend the rest of the game beating the shit out of it goes back to my statement about the morality of Peter Parker in this universe, an orange jumpsuit means dangerous and violent. And there is no exception to that. And the fact that they used a real facility that is almost exactly the opposite of that is disturbingly problematic. Could this have been solved relatively straightforward by uh, giving it the name of a fictional Marvel prison? It could have. In fact, they didn't. They already have one. The they've got the raft, the raft right there. The one where they house all the supervillains. That's the one featured in the 2005 New Avengers storyline, Breakout, which was adapted into the beginning of the Avengers: Earth's Mightiest Heroes TV series. So let's talk about Miles Morales. The path of Miles throughout the game is the becoming of a new version of Spider-Man, where his his father is killed, being a hero, 
mm-hmm. defending Norman Osborn, who, by the way, I noted to Sharon, uh, creates monsters in this. He's never the Green Goblin, but he creates monsters just by being who he is, just by his business decisions. He uh, um. creates Mr. Negative, effectively. He creates um, Dr. Octopus. Uh, him, him being around, pissing everybody off creates monsters uh, but it also inadvertently creates miles as a a new spider-man he's basically the uh he is what jameson attributes spider-man to being in that he just he he attracts these super villain type characters that spider-man then has to go face and and jameson is accusing spider-man of attracting all these people Mm -hmm. but really it's osborne and it was actually uh, a, a pleasant surprise to have him not going, <laughs> Godspeed, Spider-Man, and just being like evil Norman Osborn. We've seen that version. We've seen, oh, you're such a disappointment, Harry, uh, in the, uh, the the amazing film. And, and we've seen uh, Osborn in Spectacular being his you know cold self and, and the Green Goblin that stemmed from that. But we very rarely ever seen just Norman Osborn the businessman and his troubles behind closed doors and nothing really to do with the Green Goblin yeah he's kind of more of a Lex Luthor character in this which I like he is but he's less you can actually see where he's coming from rather than sort of this Mm -hmm. puny city will be mine in in a a, well the (laughs) Rather than uh, what, what would Clancy Brown say or do in, in it, you know, I'm, I'm going to control this city, and, and no Spider-Man's going to stand in my way. Uh, it's he's not even doing that. He's he's uh, uh, seemingly acting on every impulse he possibly can to bring Harry back from his mm-hmm. uh, uh, condition, which appears to be somewhat symbiote-driven. Yeah. They they did a really good job of back to the point about humanizing the villains you know we we see that norman has done all kinds of terrible things and he's really a pretty shit person but the thing the the big thing that everybody the the like devil's breath outbreak and all of that Mm. is it was never supposed to be a weapon it was supposed to be a cure he was doing everything he could to help harry like all of this stems back to harry is sick I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to step on anyone I have to to make him better. And he never becomes cartoonish in that, mm-hmm. which is uh, admirable. Also, he reminded me of a young James Kahn, who actually would have been a really good Norman Osborn. That's interesting. Yeah. I was thinking of him as an old Cole Hauser. <laughs> <laughs> We never actually got to talk about Miles in this episode. I admire how much of just a normal, good-hearted kid they made him. That accentuates even more that Spider-Man could be any one of you enthusiastic readers or true believers or anyone who just gives a shit. Because you can't be Spider-Man and not care. That's always the Spider-Imposter. The transition of uh, Dr. Octavius to uh, Doc Ock, they tease you at the beginning, like when, when uh, Peter comes in and he, like he's experimenting with the arms and it's like oh god are we going to get him straight away but then they (laughs) they they space and pace that out throughout the whole games allowing you to actually get close to octavius to actually really start to value him as a friend to know where it's going because we're all fans of spider-man but to 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 wish that it wouldn't and then we start to see his edgy side and we start to see the cracks in his uh, demeanor and, and everything starts to go downhill and it's this you know, tragedy waiting to happen. But rather than it being one of those ridiculous, like over in a space of an afternoon movies, uh, it's, 
it's it's gradual. It's a death by degrees, and the version of Octavius that comes back feels desperate and uh, a broken version of of Octavius, the, the the good man that he could have been. So you feel that sense of hurt and betrayal and regret on Peter's part, and the you know when he. he the two face off against each other. It feels very personal rather than mm-hmm. Octavius hounding him the whole way through. I feel like they leaned on Mr. Negative most of the way through the game. And then we're just like, nah, he's just one of the members of the sinister six. And then they kind of don't really resolve the, uh, uh the Lee storyline, not in the, in the right way. I have completely forgotten why Lee, the specifics of why Lee hates Osborne. I can only assume it's because devil's breath killed his family. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, what not devil not devil's breath it was just experimentation the uh osborne was experimenting on lee for because he was sick somehow mm-hmm. and in the process gave him his negative powers but right. it caused an explosion that killed his parents right so oh his parents so mm-hmm. it's a my dead family but rather than it being my wife and my child as standard it's it's the parents okay that's better <clears throat> And it does give him a, a reason to push forwards, but it feels like at the last minute they kind of yanked the rug out from under Lee and said, no, the real villain was Doc Ock all along, mm-hmm. uh, which um, you could maybe do some more later with Lee, but it feels like that, that ship has sailed in terms of you either bring him back to being able to be more in control of himself. The way that they had seemed to be hinting with the vulture that he's not going to be wholly villainous if he ever comes back in the MCU, mm. or... You just focus on other villains. I think Octavius being the ultimate villain is kind of important because it's there, but for the grace of God goes Peter. Of course. Peter goes yeah. a different yeah. route. Dr. Octopus is where he could very easily have ended up. Yeah. So I think it is pretty crucial to get that in there. But, I mean, obviously I haven't seen as much of the game as you have, um, but I do take your point about Lee being too prominent to then turn around and go, no, not really. Yeah. Yeah, to, to Sharon's point, the the dynamic between Peter and Otto is, it, it's essentially the two sides of how to interpret with great power comes great responsibility. Mm. Otto is... Otto is coming at it from a point of view of arrogance, as in, you know, it's my job to rule over those who are less than me because I know how to do it right. Whereas Peter is coming from empathy. He's coming from a position of, I can make things better for everyone. Therefore I have to do it in any way that I can. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Doc Ock's um, sensibilities are more in keeping with the themes of the game than Lee's. Mm-hmm. where Lee is so consumed with bitterness and rage and hatred, he's more like a Sam Raimi villain. Mm. And he's the closest thing we have to a mustache-twirling villain in this. And it does seem a little odd that, again, what I said about motivation, somebody who is driven by such an all-encompassing desire for revenge and personal evening of the score... Mm would also be motivated to set up the facility that he has and operate the the level of help and support that he gives. And the final uh, aspect was this. This is something that I found out about halfway through, and mm. this, like I say, made the game better, more potent for me. Aunt May 
dies. She yeah. dies of the uh, devil's breath sickness. And there's... First off, I could tell as soon as devil's breath was invoked, I was like, oh, God, it's just a countdown to this becoming something that affects a lot of people. And mm-hmm. But also, because I knew about what was going to happen to May, every exchange she had with Peter was sad. Every one was tinged with bittersweetness but it wasn't just sad because i was like they really love each other that has such weight and value but it hurt in the same way that uh, you know a, an even more punchy version of his relationship with otto because this is something that's gone back for many many more years since peter was a small boy for sure that's something that i think can be evoked in any relationship where one party is significantly older than the other, mm-hmm. that if you're awake to it, there's there's going to be... It's not something that you're necessarily always conscious of. But an inevitability. But this, yeah, this feeling that one day you will still be here and this person won't be. Yeah. But it's not just that. It's not just that May dies. It's that Peter has the option to cure her, but to do so would selfishly use up the reserves of the antiserum for the virus. So he can choose to take that for himself and for Aunt May and to use it for her, or he can give it to the rest of the people. And Mm -hmm. what slays me about this scene is that his decision was never really in doubt, but they really hold it. They really show you that someone else in his shoes might have gone the other way. And it is a perfect and tragic example of what it takes to be Spider-Man in a way that none of the Raimi films, again, sorry to pick on them, you know, with his sort of, I will abandon you, Mary Jane, because that will keep you alive. None of the, really none of any of the films have actually given Peter a horrible choice to make that where he has to go for uh, selfless rather than selfish in it, and and for him to lose so much as a result. Yeah. And I would say two things with regard to that decision as well. First off, there is somebody who makes the other decision and that's Norman. Yeah. Because everything he does is about is for Harry, yeah. saving Harry at the expense of who gives a fuck else. You know, mm-hmm. let's let's put if this entire city goes down, I don't care. I have to save my son. And that is a powerful driver for him. And it's a very it human is, response. Absolutely. But it yeah. is also the antithesis of, of Peter's position, which, as you say, is never really in doubt. It's really just a question of how much time he gets with her before that decision has to be made. Um, and Because Peter is exemplary of our best selves and the people we should aspire to be especially under pressure, which he almost always is. Yeah. I love in that sequence how not only do the audience know already ahead of time the decision that he's going to make, but so does May and so does he. And that's made so clear when, you know, when he says, I don't know what to do. And she says, yes, you do. You know exactly what to do. And there's no bitterness or betrayal or anything like that in her voice when she says that it's just it's just love and it you know you turns back to peter's face and it hurts him so much because he already knows what he has to do he already knows what he's going to do but the act of doing it 
is so painful and he's trying to put that off for as long as he possibly can. And uh, it just like I don't get teary in video games very much or movies really for that matter either. But the room got a little dusty at this point for me and I think I'm not the only one. I think as well part of why that sorry part of why that decision seems inevitable for him is because it's what she'd choose mm-hmm. and he's always followed her example because Ben may have told him what to do but May has always showed him how to do it it was yeah. May's decision to work with Feast. She's worked there for mm-hmm. years, yeah. as, as is illustrated. Peter's following her. And it, I, I, you know, thought, oh, she's inspired by Peter and, and, and his, you know, doing good for others. And she's decided, I'm going to do some good uh, for other people myself. And then I thought, no, in this world, May has been someone who works for other people selflessly. He's, she's inspired him his whole life. And and again, this is another umbrella theme of the whole game, is how everybody in this story inspires each other. Lee even says it about when they have the little party for May. Yeah. She says she's inspired by him. He is now inspired by her. That's the point that we all set examples for each other. And it's not just making the point that it is good to do it is a far, far greater thing doing stuff for others. The game is illustrating it's really hard. Mm-hmm. You've got to keep it up. You've got to maintain and to get those reserves of strength. Like I said, you need that support group. You need a family of sorts. gonna be okay ma'am i've got the cure right here take off your mask i want to see my nephew you knew i've known for a while i never wanted you to worry i did and i am so proud of you and Ben would be too. All the people you've saved. I don't know what to do. Yes, you do.
so yeah. why are other games going to be even more of a challenge than just getting this one done for Insomniac? I mean, aside from the fact that the bar is now set so high that every game that they make from now on, people are going to go into hoping that it's another Spider-Man. Well, it's not the Big Apple, but uh, it's all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But we've also now played this. We've we've raced around New York as Spider-Man for 40 or so hours. We'll play even more in the DLC. Uh, and, you know, adding more villains and heroes to the island of Manhattan will be great fun. We'll be able to see Mysterio. Long last, hopefully, <laughs> maybe. The first thing that uh, Jim Sterling pointed out when uh, he reviewed this game was that he was hoping for more of like a rogues gallery. So it'd be like Mysterio and Rhino and Electro and Shocker and Vulture and... Doc Ock and Green Goblin and Tombstone and just like the whole the way that Arkham Asylum that first game seems to almost effortlessly blend like a whole bunch of Batman's villains in and then Arkham City comes on and goes oh there were a couple missing from that Mr. Freeze the Penguin and Catwoman of course let's get them all in there too and it feels like they could just go well this time Spider-Man's got Albany and uh <laughs> And various other, ups, uh, you know, he can also explore Queens and... and uh, Does New Jersey have its own villain? Yeah, uh, but, like, you <laughs> you can do just the island of Manhattan again, but there's uh, there's limited ways you can make it wildly different. Or you could take Spider-Man somewhere else. And so, yeah, the problem is, New York as a major character has already been literally explored. Not to completion, but just in a mm-hmm. way that is very thorough so coming back to the same place is always going to feel in some way like dlc and the other thing is that i've heard people going well they could make any game this could be like the the marvel video game universe they could do an iron man game a thor game a captain america game another good captain america game um Mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, they could do guardians of the galaxy and 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 true they could but no one moves like spider-man no. And the the support cast and, and the, the, the subtlety with which this game is executed means it's going to take a lot. And I thought of someone who's been relatively unexplored all these decades, and right now, I think a lot of people would like to explore his city. Okay. Black Panther. than doing Spider-Man for the follow-up. I know it seems tantalizing with, oh, what are we going to do with Harry? (laughs) Just put that on the shelf for a few years, focus on building Wakanda from the Mm. ground up and deliver a video game version of Black Panther with a Spider-Man cameo at some point. Um, (laughs) And and, and that way you can play T'Challa in in what feels fresh and new because we haven't seen this done to death in the movies yet. In... Because Black Panther moves like Spider-Man. He is incredible the way that he can traverse his city. And so, yeah. Black, but also out in the, 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 the various 
um, uh, topographical feature lands of Africa, you can get Black Panther in a lot of different places uh, for, yeah, he- you know, side missions. And, oh, we're going to just take you out to here, T'Challa. Mm-hmm. He's and- also not bound to the city the way Spider-Man is. Like you said, you know, he, he yeah. Spider-Man's navigation breaks down. His method of traversal breaks down. Yeah. In a neighborhood, in a suburb, in the countryside. You know, if he doesn't have cities in Arizona, yeah. (laughs) If he doesn't have high-rise buildings to to zip onto, he's Spider-Man does Utah. (laughs) (laughs) Did did I mention my Spider-Mobile? You're going to get some roller skates and a dog. (laughs) So, yeah, but like Black Panther, you know, you could get all, like, he's basically Batman. So you could get all the, you know, the the support Mm -hmm. from the palace. You've got this massive base of operations you can have. And then you can do like a a mid game where it's like the bottom falls out of T'Challa's world. And you can have it evoke the the MCU versions without actually doing it. It felt like this Spider-Man could fit neatly into the MCU with just a, a, a palette swap. In fact, I went around for a good proportion of the game in the Stark outfit, and if I wasn't oh, in yeah. that, I was in the Iron Spider. I did swat <laughs> switch a lot, but those were my two favorite costumes by far, and they looked Absolutely. phenomenal to be swinging around the place in. So a Black Panther game, I would be far more interested in seeing than Spider-Man 2, colon, applesauce, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> How do you like them apples? Oh, Doctor also, Strange, yeah. They can build on that Sanctum Sanctorum they've already put in I there. know it sucks to create this yep. incredible swinging engine and then go, right, let's put an end to that and do something else entirely. But it feels like you could apply this world to Wakanda and you could apply, you know, varieties of it to Doctor Strange and actually You're just sort of keep the basic engine. That the sling ring animation oh, yeah. couldn't be built on that zipline animation. Yeah. Mm. But it feels like, not that Spider-Man's been done, but I'm more interested in seeing other heroes who especially haven't really been explored that much in the past. And we're now moving on to that era. We're beyond Iron Man and Thor and, and Captain America. We're now yeah. moving if on to Marvel's... they turned around and said, right, we're going to do a, a Thor, and we're going to do an Iron Man, and we're going to do a Captain America. What is this, 2008? We're going to do a Hulk. <laughs> oh, God. No, no one's doing a Hulk, I can assure you. <laughs> That's yeah. true. The Hulk games have Try always been bad. Fail. Ultimate Destruction was okay. They could even, if you wanted to, on that same, that same token... Uh, if they wanted to make, say, a Black Panther game or a Doctor Strange game, but they wanted to keep some of that, the web-swinging dynamic, mm-hmm. they could always use Spider-Man as connective tissue. Like, maybe Spider-Man gets sent to... Something happens and Spider-Man's going to Wakanda for some reason. And, and so we have, like, a mission that's him swinging around the buildings, the high-rise buildings of Wakanda, mm-hmm. and then he meets T'Challa and then... The rest of the ja- the game is T'Challa doing his traversal, and we get a couple of mini missions with Spider Man, the way we got with Mary Jane or other characters in this one. So it's we like have a TV like, spinoff, and it's like, luckily his right. friend Spider Man will show up to help him out. <laughs> I just had this vision of him trying to web onto a building in Wakanda and just falling off, and Shuri coming over and going, "I'm so sorry." Um, the the I made the buildings yes. sticky stuff. <laughs> I heard that you were leaving these disgusting trails of webbing all over the city in New York. We didn't want that happening here. However, I did build you a new gadget. You can use this instead. There you go. Could you imagine uh, Peter Parker hanging out in Shuri's tech lab? Yes, I could. (laughs) Uh, Okay. And we shall see 
We shall see what the, uh, they do. Effectively now, the Marvel world is their oyster. They can choose to do whatever they wish. If they just do a Spider-Man game with a bigger rogues gallery, it feels like it'll be uh, underachieving. That's all this week, true believers. We hope you all had fun. And before we go, we'd like to thank our $15 sponsors, Joel Moleman Robinson, Stable Abel Savard, Mutating Mike Haskell, Sean the Scorpion Doran, the ever-loving Kevin Otero, Luke the Duke of Rebuke Hatfield, Negasonic Nick Ord, Deadpan Duran Barnett, Totally Terrific Tom Painter, Furious Finbar Nicole, J. Jonah Jameson Wright, Howard the Mark Louche, Daredevil Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, the bro in the know, going toe-to-toe with the status quo, Colossal Crusher Chris Finnick, The Tremendous Toby Jungius, Dave Hawkeye Hickman, Baron Aaron Lecluse of Latveria, Deadly David Garcia Abril, Kieran the Dashing Diva Datchla, and Lorraine, our main Mary Jane Chisholm. We'll see you all next week for the continued escapades of that Bostonian brainiac brawler, Goodwill Hunting, Excelsior. Jesse, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Uh, yeah, I actually just launched a new podcast with my friend Jonathan. It's called Recorded Tomorrow, and it's all about how to use uh, time travel in fiction, the sorts of things that you need to look out for and, and pitfalls to avoid. It uh, should be, by the time this is published, hopefully available searchably on iTunes. Um, it's already searchable on Google Play, but if you can't find it otherwise, you can just go to recordedtomorrow.podbean.com and get the feed straight from there. The Recorded Tomorrow. That was our Spider-Man The Big Apple podcast. I want to hear every single one of you calling it that from now on. And we hope, Chris Finnick, that you had fun with this commission. We will see you next week. And we're going to leave you on John Paisano's amazing, soaring Spider-Man score. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
love to see like and maybe it's just that the movie's coming out it's got me thinking about it but it would be fun to see a spider-verse game mm-hmm. where you had you played through multiple different iterations of spider-man yeah. and each one had maybe a different feel to it and so things you like were that. describing spider-man edge of time oh really yeah uh hold okay. on edge. well so that but good <laughs> I mean, Edge of Time was okay. There was another one as well. Uh, um, uh, Shattered Dimensions. I, I, say, I, I haven't played either of those, but I've I've heard things about them. Mm. Um, so I guess maybe that informed it. But I'd, I I'd think like honestly, to see it feels like it's informed uh, End of the Spider Verse. Spider Man Noir. Um, I'd never heard of him before Shattered Dimensions came along, and then like, I love he, that they got this. Nick Cage for that. Oh, <laughs> I'm Spider Man. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, like Shattered Dimensions and um, Edge of Time are exemplary of what Spider-Man games used to be, trying to be like trammeled uh, corridor versions of uh, Arkham Asylum. And this marries some of the better elements of that with Spider-Man 2 and the the original um, uh, Spider-Man Activision game. And it creates this wonderful blend of the best of everything with so few flaws that they they just keep it shy of the p word which we don't mention (laughs) i think i may have actually let it slip once in here and i apologize for that but uh i i think that that setup with this team could do really great things yeah Agreed. This um, this Wikipedia entry is really damning, by the way, of the Spider-Man <laughs> Edge of Time. Edge of Time is the second Spider-Man title to be developed by Beanox, following Spider-Man's Shattered Dimensions of 2010 and the first released since Activision and Marvel's decision to make Beanox their lead developer on future Spider-Man games. Spider-Man Edge of Time, along with most of the games published by Activision that used the Marvel license, was delisted and removed from all digital storefronts on January the 1st, 2014. It's informative, <laughs> but it seems like I pronounce you dead, Spider-Man Edge of Time. Absolutely. <laughs> oh god <laughs> I could still be found on discs second hand for a ridiculous markup <laughs> yeah you should do you, you should do a whole episode of the like comments against humanity about all the Spider-Man games oh. <laughs> hold on <laughs> hold on Spider-Man Edge of Time it's got really high scores oh hold on first really off Amazon users like it if you want to get it, it's uh, like £24, so it's, it's not too much. That's ridiculous. Um, and uh, only on 4%, 4% one-star review. Edge of wasting your time. Oh, bazing. <laughs> I bought this game for about £2 on Amazon's Lightning Deals. It's probably only worth that. But still, if you're paying any more for it, then you're wasting your cash. On to the actual game. The graphics are very mediocre, but there are some nice art styles but they just don't have that polish they need. The voice acting is awful, but it really could be a lot worse. At least the actors tried. The story is very uncompelling, and the combat mechanics are just hugely flawed, rushed, and downright boring. And as for the depth, simple hack-and-slash beat-em-up, with a few lousy upgrades that you don't feel you really need, no replayability, just a few mindless challenges, the devs probably spent five minutes coding it just for the sake of it. Still, all negatives aside, this is a one-star review, by the way, if you can get this for a bargain and you really love Spidey, then you might find some entertainment from this game, but not a lot. This is definitely not a triple A title. Okay, so 
in for a penny, in for a pound. Should we look at the Spider-Man PS4 bad reviews? Oh, uh, you know what? Let's look at the wretched hive of scum and villainy that is user reviews on Metacritic. <laughs> right. This is uh, from Shifty Man, and it's one of the uh, lowest user, user reviews uh, on uh, uh, Metacritic, and it's from 198 <laughs> negative reviews. So remember, folks, this isn't Edge of Time or Shattered Dimensions or Friend or Foe or Web of Shadows. This is Spider-Man The Big Apple, the new game that we've just been talking about. He gives it a 2. Typical open-world game. Sure, it looks great and plays smooth, but there's absolutely nothing new here. The same old tired formula. Yet the gaming drones of this generation lap this trash up like the programmed sheeple they are. Just look at the true open-world RPG like Original Sin 2. That gets hardly any credit and shows just how much the industry is nothing more than cash for comments. Spud, I literally got paid for this review but i wasn't paid to say it was good spider-man is just another washed up old tired boring genre of gaming i'm becoming amiel du hardcore here. these games are for big boys only We're going to the village to hunt for console peasants! <laughs> oh, good Can God. we all just take a second to laugh at the uh, at the absurdity of a title of a game called Original Sin 2? <laughs> <laughs> it's like Final good Fantasy point. 14. <laughs> right. Being Around gives it a zero. Shockingly bad. The pacing makes no sense. With text flying off the screen before you can read it. And I read really fast and <laughs> tutorial fights that kill you before you have a chance to try what you're supposed to be learning then once you learn a move you inexplicably can't use it in the very next battle did you encounter that guys Travelling via web through the city was also ridiculous. Things just happen erratically. No matter which button you press, a part of your brain tells you you just need to get the hang of it. But after ten minutes, you realise there's nothing to learn. Just mash buttons and pretend you're controlling what's going on. Two hours into it, and I'm not ready to throw the game across the room, but close. Right. Which game was that for? Spider-Man on the PlayStation 4. The, this one? Yeah. Now, some people falsely say I make up stories about Spider-Man. And this will not help my case because it sounds outlandish, but I have personally seen listener-recorded video of Spider-Man snatching pigeons. Pigeon-napping. Why? What possible purpose could there be for such aberrant behavior. I've thought about it long and hard, and I think I've figured it out. He's eating them. We've always assumed Spider-Man is a man with the attributes of a spider, but what if it's the reverse? What if somehow a spider gained the powers of a man, and he's stalking his prey? Somewhere there's a giant web with these poor pigeons stuck in it, waiting to be devoured. And will it stop at pigeons? Will we be next? I promise you this. I will not rest until I have the answers. Spider-Man charging into a spider's web, kissing spiders, spider vomit, catch him in bed with a spider. 